the Donate button. It's Christmas, it's 8 o'clock, and it's a special treat to welcome you to a Washington broadcast tradition, a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, hoping you're having a safe and very Merry Christmas. And now that you've unwrapped all the presents, we have a couple of gifts, a couple of old-time radio shows that we hope will be new to you, Bing Crosby and Orson Welles together in a Radio Hall of Fame performance, Edmund O'Brien, starring in The True Story of Christmas in a World War II prisoner of war camp on Cavalcade of America, Roddy McDowell recounting the nativity story from a different point of view, and the comic misadventures of Lucille Ball trying to revive a Christmas tradition on My Favorite Husband. But today's a day for tradition, too, and we've got some big broadcast holiday favorites. The drama Little Town of Bethlehem from The First Nighter, and Miracle for Christmas from Grand Central Station. So whether you're scraping the leftovers into three-gallon baggies or getting rid of the leftover eggnog in a more organic way, remind yourself that the hard part's over and relax with tales of Christmas's past. We'll start with the always clever Henry Morgan in a story with special resonance for those of us here in Washington. You'll hear references to wooden cigar store Indian statues, vintage toys like erector sets, flexible flyer sleds, and tinker toys, and politics in 1946, when the Democrats had won four straight presidential elections, the Republican Congress and President Truman were constantly at odds, OPA meant the Office of Price Administration, citizens were being asked, are you now or have you ever been a communist? And President Truman was well known for his amateur piano playing and for his singing daughter, Margaret. And there are fine parodies of the radio news commentators Walter Winchell, H.V. Kaltenborn, and Gabriel Heater. To help you appreciate the jokes, we've posted links to examples of those men's broadcasts on our Facebook page. From Christmas Day, 1946, and ABC, it's The Henry Morgan Show. The Henry Morgan Show! Morgan Show with Arnold Stang, Fran Warren, Kirk Kelton, Milton Kalem's orchestra, and me, Ben Grower. And here's the star of the Henry Morgan Show, standing on his favorite corner in front of the cigar store. Good evening, anybody. Here's Morgan. Thank you. Uh, not so many Christmases ago, we broadcast a little Christmas story for children. And uh, it was definitely for children, but we heard later that a number of grown-ups sneaked out of bed and listened. Well, you know how parents are, kids. Just when you think that they're asleep, they come out of the bedroom with all kinds of excuses. They want to drink a water. <laughs> or uh, there's a tiger in the room. Their blanket fell on the floor or something. So this year, uh, we might as well let them stay up and listen. But parents, no snickering. We're not going to stand for a lot of grown-ups sitting in front of the radio, shaking their heads doubtfully. 
as though we were making the whole thing up. Now, kids, if you notice your mommy or daddy saying things like, um, Oh, nonsense. Or, uh, well, that couldn't happen. Just look them in the eye and say, I find this story thoroughly credible. Of course, I don't have that kind of trouble with my parents. If they say all nonsense to me, I just don't give them tickets to my show. Now, it's a story, and pretty good. And the story begins the day after Christmas, which, you have to admit, is an unusual day to begin a Christmas story. It's about two boys and a girl. They're named Norman, Joey, and Jeannie. How old are they? Oh, they're just about your age. And where do they live? Oh, just across the street. As the story begins, it's the day after Christmas. And Norman, a boy, is coming up the front walk to Joey's house, and he says... Hiya, Joey. Hi, Norman. What presents have you got broken? Oh, I forgot to tell you. What he said was, what presents have you got broken? <laughs> it was a very good line, too. <laughs> I have to tell you that Joey is sitting there looking at the ruins of an electric train, which it took a dozen graduate engineers to put together. What you doing, Joey? I'm trying to figure out how to put this train together again. Who took it apart? My father. <laughs> don't you know enough not to let your father fool around with your toys? They don't know what it's all about. Well, he was fooling with the train and running it round and round, and after a while he said he had a theory about how to make it run different. What's a theory? I don't know. Something your father has when he tells you to hand him a screwdriver. <laughs> What'd you get for Christmas? Oh, a sled and some skates and a rector set. Yeah? What else? Oh, the rest of it was just useful stuff. <laughs> yeah, I got stuck with some of that, too. Hello, Norman. Hello, Jeannie. Hello, Joey. Joey, why don't you say hello to Jeannie? She's my sister. <laughs> Hey, Norman, I bet you didn't see Santa Claus. Oh, yeah? Did you? Sure. Did he come down the chimney? We got radiators. <laughs> oh, Joey, Mama says for you to come in and wash up the supper. I don't bother me. What a pet this sister is. I asked for a brother and I got you. <laughs> now, you better mind or Santa Claus won't bring you anything for Christmas. You just had Christmas, Smarty. Smarty yourself, I mean next year. Ha! You don't have to be good all year. I figure two weeks before Christmas is plenty. <laughs> you do so too have to be good all year. Good all year for just one Christmas? Gee, that doesn't sound fair. Yeah, if you've got to be good every day in account of Christmas... Then it ought to be Christmas every day. What do you think, Joey? It ought to be, but it ain't. That's on account of they got the wrong people in charge of it. Who, Joey? You know, grown-up. You know, Joey's absolutely right. I can't blame him for wanting Christmas every day if he has to be good every day. And that's the way it looks to him as he sits down to supper with Joan and his father and his mother on the day after Christmas. Did you wash up before coming to the table, Joey? Yes, Mom. He didn't. I did. 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 For goodness sakes, children, stop it. Did. Did. Didn't. Did. Now, that's enough. Didn't. Didn't what, Jean? I forgot. <laughs> Joey, you aren't eating a thing. Pass your plate. Oh, Mom, I don't like turkey hash. Nonsense, son. It's delicious. No, thank you, Mother. I don't believe I'll have any. <laughs> Daddy, 
Is that right what Jeannie said? That you have to be good all year for Santa Claus to come? That's right, son. Gosh, if a fella's got to spend all his time being good, he never gets time to live a little. Isn't that right, Daddy? Huh? Oh, of course, Joey. Father! Mm hmm? Oh, no, no, Joey, of course not. <laughs> Whatever your mother says. <laughs> mother, would you hand me that newspaper, please? Here you are, dear. I haven't seen it yet. What are the headlines? General Eisenhower gives up presidential ambitions, announces he has become Republican. <laughs> an interesting item. You remember that woman in Boston who left $50,000 to her cat last year? Yes. The cat just died and left it to another cat. Well, that's sensible. <laughs> Here's an interesting item. Read it, dear. Park Avenue theater owners are lobbying in Washington against popcorn machines. Look at this headline. Snobby Lobby claims popcorn hobby makes their lobbies slobby. Daddy, what's a lobby? Well, a lobby is a group of people who go to Washington to put pressure on congressmen so they'll pass a new law. Can they get any kind of a law passed? Well, sometimes it seems that way. Even if the president doesn't want it? Especially. <laughs> Dad... Yeah? How far is it to Washington? Well... I never said it. Somebody else must have said it. Well, the plot is not getting any thinner. Joey's getting an idea to have a law passed. Sort of a new OPA. Overthrow parents' authority. <laughs> and uh, naturally, the first thing he has to do is tell Norman. Hey, Norman, we got to start a lobby. Okay, what's a lobby? Well, a lobby is when you go to Washington and, and tell a senator to pass a law. Who does? Anybody. Us, we could do it. We've got rights just like people. No kidding. Sure. You just go to Washington and tell them to pass a law, like, like no school, no washing for supper, no spanking, no running errands. Oh, they wouldn't pass all those laws. Yeah. yeah. But I know how you can get everything you want with just one law. Yeah? yeah? On Christmas, you don't go to school, you don't run errands, and you don't get spanked. Isn't that so? Yeah. So you just get the senator to pass a law making every day Christmas. Jimmy! Santa Claus would come every day, too. You suppose he would? He'd have to if it was a law. Jiminy! Jiminy. We haven't got a Jiminy. We got a radiator. <laughs> yes? <laughs> Now we go back and join the three kids, Joey, Norman, and Jean, who, uh, you probably remember, had decided to go to Washington as the head of a children's lobby to get a law passed making every day Christmas. They carry with them a petition signed by such leading American figures as Butch Jenkins and Margaret O'Brien. And so, to Washington, where the three children have just arrived. Gee whiz, look at all the big buildings around. What's that thing? I saw a picture of that one. That's the Washington Monument. Wow, is he tall. <laughs> My mother says that maybe I'll grow up and be president. Ah, oh, they don't have girl presidents. Why not? 
Well, a president has to make laws and speeches and wars and things like that. Yeah. All ladies do is cook and go shopping and take care of the kids. Well, they can do all that other junk in their spare time. Hey, let's ask someone where we can find some senators. Hey, there's a man. Let's ask him. Hello, mister. Hiya. <laughs> We just came to Washington. We have to go someplace in an awful hurry. Who's stopping you? <laughs> we don't know exactly where to go. What's the matter? You lost? No. We came to Washington to get something done. You're lost. No, we ain't lost. We've got important business. We're going to see a real senator. Big deal. Well, if you're looking for senators, why don't you go to the center building? It's on S Street. They told us it was on O Street. I tell him that. He tells me O. Thanks, mister. I hope we'll see you again sometime. Likewise. Still don't know what Gerard was doing in Washington. But uh, those children were there on business, and they started to look for a senator to get their bill introduced. In the crowd, they couldn't tell who was a senator because many senators look like people. So they went all around Washington, where they saw many politicians and other sites. Finally, they came to an important government building. This is the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. What's that? Well, this is where we make all the paper money. Well, my daddy makes a lot of money. I hope he doesn't make it the way we do. <laughs> How much money you got here, huh? Oh, I don't know. I just keep making it. Then I never know where all that money goes. That's just what daddy always tells mom. <laughs> I tell you something, though. Last week alone, I made $20 million. Gosh. Last month, I made $200 million. For the year, I made $3 billion. And here's a sample of my work. Gosh! A picture of a penny. Here's another place. Maybe they can help us here. I'll open the door. Look here, Jones. I haven't you found my fountain pen yet? No, sir, and I've looked everywhere for well, it. now that pen's been missing for three weeks. Can't anybody in this place ever find anything? What does it say on the door, Joey? Federal Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> hey, Norm, maybe this is the place. Yeah, it's a Senate committee. Let's go in. Yes, yes, what is it? I'm a busy man. Where are you from? Well, sir, we're from PS58. What congressional district? <laughs> huh? I said what congressional district? Third, fourth, fifth? Oh, we're from the third grade. Miss Horton is our teacher. Horton? Horton? I don't know any Miss Horton. Gee, didn't you ever go to school? Of course I went to school, but that was 40 years ago. Oh, Miss Horton must have been there then. Now, listen, children, you just can't come walking in here. After all, this is the government. I know. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Say, that's pretty good. Do you know who said that? Yes, sir. Miss Horton. Now, children, 
What can I do for you? I'm a busy man. Mr. Senator, we came here about Christmas. Yes. We don't think one Christmas a year is enough. We'd like to have Christmas every day. Christmas every day? Well, I can't blame you. When I was young, I also had dreams. But now I don't dream of making everyone happy. I don't dream of solving all problems. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. What? You don't sleep so good. <laughs> all the people, by the people, for the people. Uh, Miss Horton said that, eh? Yes, sir. And we believe it, too. I see. Uh, let me ask you something, kiddies. Are you now, or have you ever been a member... <laughs> They, um, didn't get very far with that, Senator, but they weren't discouraged. After all, a child who can nag his mother into giving him an all-day sucker just before dinner, not going to be discouraged by a senator. And the children began to pick up support around the country. Newspaper headlines said, Kids claim cloakroom quorum. One paper quoted the minority opposition group with the headline, Anti-kid block blocks kids block. <laughs> and on the air, you heard reports like this. Ladies and gentlemen, your favorite news commentator, Walter Morgan. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. American All Season Trip. Beep 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 said they didn't have a chance. Ha! All right, all right. But, Mr. Secretary, we want it awful bad. Ridiculous, absurd, flagrantly unconstitutional. Undermines the foundation of our government. Of the people, by the people, and for the people, as was said by that great statesman, Miss Horton of PS58. <laughs> Your proposal is undoubtedly a priori and e pluribus. Now, what do you say to that? <laughs> okay, now, now, now stop that. Right now. Please, you, you can't, you, you're, you're just trying to, to... Oh, all right. woman's tears. How important they've been to history. If it weren't for a woman's tears, civilization wouldn't have many of its wonderful inventions. Mink coats, <laughs> diamond bracelets, babies, and so the children's lobby made progress. And on the air, you heard, ladies and gentlemen, your favorite news commentator, H.V. Carlton Morgan. Good morning. Tonight, the news from Washington... Concerns the United Nations delegate from Russia, who is, I understand, Russian. <laughs> and there is a discussion of the future of the United Nations, which, in my opinion, still lies ahead. This may mean nothing, or, on the other hand, something. <laughs> or both. Which is unlikely, at least at this time. <laughs> Meanwhile, the children's lobby is making considerable progress in Washington. It looks very much as if the president will... Good night. And finally, 
Late on the next day... Hey, Norman, let's try this place. We haven't been here. Okay, Joey, let's go up the steps. Welcome to the White House, children. Is there something I can do for you? Well, we'd like to have a more pass. I know just how you feel. This would be a very popular move. You see, we want to... Just a moment, kiddies, just a moment. Margaret. Just a moment. Margaret! Well, kiddies, I feel this way about it. You can please some of the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time. But you can't please some of the people any of the time. If you pass this law, you'll please all of the kids all of the time. All right. I'll do it. Have a glass of buttermilk. Ladies and gentlemen, your favorite news commentator, Gabriel Morgan. Ah, oh, there's good news tonight. There's a little light burning in the White House tonight. And there's something about the sign of a white light burning bright in a house that's white. That makes a man want to shout out so all the world can hear. Oh, there's good news tonight. <laughs> ah, and little children are rejoicing tonight. All over the world tonight. And I've just been handed a flash, and it says, Good night. <laughs> And so the law was... Thank you on behalf of that fellow. And so the law was passed, making every day of the year Christmas. Every day of the year. And there were great changes throughout the land. The George Washington Bridge was torn down to make a rector set. The Ford assembly lines converted overnight to making four-door tinker toys. On the stock market, the flexible flyer went up and down. And every poor little girl had a mama doll. And every rich little girl had a mater doll. Does this make boys and girls happy? We'll find out right after Milton Tatum plays Bernie Green's special type Christmas medley. Oh, 
Children have had Christmas every day for a year. The time is now December 24th, and the same two little boys are talking. Hello, Mormon. Hello, Joey. What have you got there? A sled. How many sleds you got? 364. <laughs> Me too. How many footballs you got? 364. How many skates you got? 728. <laughs> Hello, fellas. Hello, Jean. What have you got there? Oh, another old doll. What's his name? Ditto. <laughs> you know, I broke the window in the garage today. Gee, that's good. Maybe we won't get any sledding. Nah, they forgave me. Why? Because it's Christmas. Oh, gee, Christmas every day. I sure miss the 4th of July. Yeah, me too. I sure wish we had July 4th every day. Now don't start that again. Oh, look, Billy. Here comes Santa Claus. Yeah. Well, hello, children. Merry Christmas. Oh, ho, 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 Norman, would you like to see what I brought you? Nah. Oh, I got the best sled in the whole world for you. It said that yesterday. Oh, this one's got fog lights and ashtrays and a radio and sodium bumpers. I got that kind. I know, but this one's a convertible. I don't want it. Oh, now, don't make me take it back to the North Pole again. You know what we agreed, fellas. No return. Okay, okay. Put it on that pile over there. Well, fine. Goodbye and Merry Christmas. Uh, Santa. Yes? How about not coming tomorrow? Not come tomorrow? Yes. Well, why don't you skip tomorrow and make it a holiday? Oh, I'd love to, children. My feet are killing me. <laughs> but you know, it's Christmas every day. It was your idea. See you tomorrow. Christmas, you know. Oh, those bells. <laughs> I think I'll put in a buzzer. Well, goodbye. You know, kids, Christmas all year round is awful. Our law has got to be repealed. It's all priori. It's deplorable. Down with Miss Horton. On to Washington. Right on! <laughs> 
And so the children talked to the men in Washington who repealed the law and changed Christmas back to once a year. And all the children were happy again, and the moral of the story is, nil comparandum, nil quantulatum, nil ultimus. As said by that great Latin scholar and philosopher, Miss Horton of PS58. <laughs> Translated, this means, Merry Christmas, everybody, and a Happy New Year to you all. From 73 years ago tonight, The Henry Morgan Show, part of a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. It's been a while since we've heard an episode of My Favorite Husband, that wacky sitcom that's probably most noteworthy for having been the prototype of one of the colossal television hits of all time, I Love Lucy. The show's got an interesting provenance. It was based on some stories and a best-selling comic novel by a woman from Toledo named Isabel Scott Rorick. She inspired a movie, Our Husband's Necessary, and the radio series we're about to hear. Translated to television, it starred Ms. Ball's real-life husband, Desi Arnaz, and the rest is legendary. We're going to hear the first Christmas show in the radio series from Christmas Week 1949. From CBS, it's My Favorite Husband. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Yes, it's the new Gay Family series starring Lucille Ball with Richard Dunning. Brought to you by the Jell-O family of desserts. J-E-L-L-O The big red letters stand for the Jell-O family Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family That's Jell-O Yum, yum, yum Jell-O pudding Yum, yum, yum Jell-O pudding Yes, sorry and now, Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper, two people who live together and like it. As we look in on the Coopers today, they're in the living room preparing to decorate their Christmas tree. George is sniffing a twig here and one there to balance the tree, and Liz is just bringing in the ornaments. Here are the Christmas tree ornaments. Oh, George, you never know when to stop. <laughs> Look what you've done to that tree. Oh, I just want it to be symmetrical, that's all. I only cut a few twigs off the top. A few twigs. I'm up to my spine and pine. <laughs> Good heavens, is that the same tree we had a minute ago? Yes, George wants to be different. We'll have the only Christmas tree in town with a butch haircut. <laughs> Go on now, get a new tree Tell you what, I'll buy you a tree on Monday They'll be much cheaper then Oh, how could I have married a man with no sentiment? I wonder if it's too late to have our marriage annulled yeah, You better not try it, I might not take you back again <laughs> You might not take me back again 
That does it. Now I wouldn't marry you again if you were the last woman in the world. If I was the last woman in the world, I wouldn't have to get married. <laughs> Touche. Oh, don't worry, George. I'll keep you, you unromantic, dull, old, wonderful you. <laughs> Thank you. Too bad we didn't live in the old days. We could just jump in our sleigh and go caroling out into the woods after a Christmas tree. Ah, nobody ever did that. That's propaganda. It is not. I'll show you. Where's that Christmas card the Roni sent us? I'll take your word Here for it. Here it is. See the picture? A beautiful little country scene with people riding along in a sleigh and caroling. See? You know what that is? They're dragging in back of the sleigh. One of the carolers had too much eggnog? <laughs> no, that's a Yule log. Mm. That's what they did in those days. They were more full of spirit then. Mm. Especially. Especially that guy they're dragging behind the sleigh. Oh, now stop it. George, let's get a sleigh and a bunch of people and go out and sing Christmas carols. Oh, be sensible, Liz. What are you going to do? Go down to Honest Chris Kringle's and buy a used sleigh? <laughs> well, why not? Maybe we could get one that was only pulled by an elderly reindeer from Pasadena. <laughs> Go on now. Run along and get me a new tree. All right. Where's my coat? George. Mm-hmm. Here. I'll give you one last chance to prove you have a soul. Now, if I can get a sleigh someplace, will you go caroling with me? I think I can safely say yes. Okay, that's a challenge. I'll get one or my name isn't Gladys Cramhopper. Gladys Cramhopper? That isn't your name. I know. I'm not taking any chances. Hello. Sam's livery stable? I'd like to rent a sleigh. Sleigh. (laughs) S-L-A-Y. E-Y-E-I-G-H. Are you kidding? Oh, you do? Well, how much is it? What do you mean, with or without reindeer? No, this is not Santa Claus. Goodbye. Oh, it's no use, Katie. Nobody in town rents slaves. Oh, too bad. Have we got a cuckoo clock? Oh, it's Mr. Wood from next door. Oh, I'll let him in. Close the door. What's matter? <laughs> Mrs. Cooper, could I hide out in your house for a few minutes? Hide out? What's wrong, Mr. Wood? It's Christmas vacation, and my 11 children are with me 24 hours a day. <laughs> my house is like living in the... My, it's quiet in here. <laughs> uh, 11 children must be quite a problem on Christmas. Tell me, do they all hang up their stockings? You wouldn't believe it. Stockings on the mantel, stockings on the chairs, stockings on the curtains. It looks like the washing machine exploded in the living room. Oh, I'll bet you love every minute of it. Uh, Well, I must admit it's nice on Christmas morning when we all gather in front of the tree. Mrs. Wood, myself, and the eleven children. (laughs) I'll bet you can't see the tree for the woods. <laughs> you get it? See, your name is Wood, and then Mrs. I... Mrs. Cooper. What? That joke is one of my oldest friends. <laughs> if one of our children hasn't made up that joke by the time he's five, we throw him away. Well, I guess it's safe for me to go home now. The Battle of Santa Claus should be about over. Battle? Yes. Every year the believers beat up on the non-believers. 
Of course, there are more believers, counting Mrs. Wood and myself. You believe in Santa Claus? Certainly. I don't know who's been filling my children with those lies about his not being real. Oh, well, you're just the man I want, Mr. Wood. Can you, Carol? Oh, like a lark. <laughs> Deck the halls with the boughs of holly. Fa la 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 la. Oh, Here's the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. Look, I. Don't we know our dear apparel. Fa la 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 la. I'm sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> Mr. Wood, uh, let me tell you my problem. I want to get a group together and go caroling. Oh, jolly. <laughs> but, but we haven't got a sleigh. Oh, well, let's see now. Where can we get... I know, I know there's one down at the antique store, and I know the owner, Joe Gundelfinger. Joe Gundelfinger? That's an odd name. You should have heard it before he changed it. <laughs> changed it? Yes, his name used to be Joe Gundel's foot. Well, do you think that Mr. G uh, uh, Joe would uh, rent it to us or lend it to us? Well, I'm sure of it. He's a very good friend of mine. Come on, let's go down there. It's just a few blocks. Oh, George will be so surprised. Let's go. God rest you, merry gentlemen. <laughs> Here it is, Mrs. Cooper. Gundelfinger's antique shop. Oh, and there's the sleigh. Gosh, it's an old rickety one. Well, he just keeps it in the front yard as sort of an ornament. But I think it'll work. Yeah, well, if we take the pots of ivy out of it. Well, let's go in and see if you'll let us have it. Oh, the door's closed. In the way, there's a note on the door there. Uh, what yeah. does it say? Closed Friday at court having my name changed again. <laughs> Signed Joe Gundelfinger. P.S. Watch for grand opening of Smith's Antique Store. Oh, that's too bad. He had to pick today to change his name. But let's just borrow the sleigh. He won't mind. Well... Oh, come on. Well, how will we get it home? Maybe he has some antique reindeer. I think we can drag it. Oh, gee, it looks too heavy. Oh, don't underestimate me, Miss Cooper. I'm a regular Samson. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the matter, Samson? Have your hair cut? <laughs> oh, here comes Mr. Negley. Maybe he can help you pull it. Little Mr. Negley, Mrs. Cooper. If Samson can't pull it, what help will Delilah be? <laughs> oh, Mr. Wood, you shouldn't talk like that. He can't help it if he's small. Good morning, Mrs. Cooper. <laughs> Good morning, Delilah. I mean, Mr. Negley. Good morning, Mr. Negley. Good morning, Mr. Wood. Mr. Negley, you're just in time. We're trying to get this sleigh home. Will you help us pull it? Oh, I'd like to, but I just couldn't. I've been delivering mail since 7 o'clock this morning. I'm plum poop. <laughs> well, I guess you mailmen have to expect a lot of work at Christmas time. <laughs> Christmas? So that's what it is. <laughs> Mr. Negley, you're pulling my leg. Oh, Mrs. Cooper. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad that this is the end of my route. You know, I have so much mail I can't carry my bag. 
I put it on a sled and dragged it around after me. Yeah, well, that makes sense. It's fun, too. When the mail's gone, I belly whop all the way home. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it, too. Well, I used to be the block champion. Oh, so did I. I can still beat all my 11 kids. I bet I can even beat both of you belly whopping. Well, you should. You got more to whop with than we have. <laughs> Mrs. Cooper. <laughs> Look, this isn't getting the sleigh home. We're going to have a sleighing party, Mr. Negley. Oh, uh, can you sing? Hmm? Take the halls with bows of holly. La 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 la. Let's take him along anyway. Okay. Come on, help us pull this thing. Okay, I have a better idea. Let me run home and get my motorcycle. We can pull this lady there. Oh, good. I sled home. That'll be faster. Okay. We can leave it soon as Mr. Cooper gets here. Oh, where is George, anyhow? Well, I'm all set. I brought my blanket, my mittens, my earmuffs, and a hot toddy bottle. You mean a hot water bottle? Just for that, you can't drink out of it. <laughs> I've got a thermos full of hot chocolates. Will you be warm enough, Turtle Dove? Oh, yes. I've got on my galoshes and an extra pair of longies. Oh, here comes George. Hi, George! Hey, what's going on? I told you I could get a sleigh. Come on, we're going caroling and bring home a Yule log. Oh, now, Liz. You promise. Come on, get in the sleigh. Hang on tight, everybody. All set, Mr. Negley? Here we go. Up, Donder. Down, Negley. Up, motor. Down, cycle. Hey, Mr. Negley, come back for us. You forgot to put the harness on it. the Coopers. The sleigh proved too much of a load for Mr. Negley's motorcycle, and we find our old-fashioned carolers heeding that old-fashioned advice, get a horse. They're trudging down the street, horseward bound. It's only a couple of blocks further. Katie, are you sure the milkman will lend us his horse? He said he would on the phone. Oh, it's cold. Let's keep moving, huh? Yeah, my goosebumps are nudging each other to keep warm. <laughs> Gee, look in that window. Those people have a fire in the fireplace. Doesn't they look good? Yeah. Oh, I bet it's warm in there. Hey, I got a wonderful idea. We're supposed to be carolers. Well, let's serenade this house. Maybe they'll ask us in. Oh, good idea. Uh, what do we sing? Well, how about jingle bells? Okay. Uh, give us the key. Huh? Give us the key. Oh, I don't bother with keys. I just sing. Here we go. One, two, jingle bells, well, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Oh, oh, look, look, someone's coming to the window. Oh, Carolers. Yes? Come a little closer to the window. Oh, come on, he wants to thank us. Well, mister, how did you like it? Oh, 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 
Oh, we had to pick Scrooge's house. <laughs> oh. Are, are you enjoying your old-fashioned Christmas, Liz? Oh, shut up and help me chip this water off. Would you like some hot chocolate? I brought the thermos along. Oh, Katie, you're a lifesaver. Oh, the cork is stuck. Here, I'll hold the top. I don't know what you got so mad about. Sounded pretty good to me. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what's that? Well, how do you like that? What? I had this thermos cup in my hand, and that man dropped a quarter in it. <laughs> this may be the start of a great new business. <laughs> jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. All what have we here? Oh, hi, officer. Hey, let me see your license. License? What for? Caroling? No, panhandling. <laughs> now, just a minute. We weren't panhandling. This cup is for hot chocolate. Sure, and you always sweeten it with a lump of money. <laughs> oh, that was just a coincidence. Yeah. Katie was trying to get the cork out, and I was just holding the cup out like this. And I... Christmas, lady. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Not panhandling, eh? I knew the minute I looked at you, you were a bunch of bums. Oh, yeah? Well, this bum here happens to be George Cooper. Now, now, let me handle this, Liz. Uh, officer, I'm George Cooper, vice president of the Sheridan Falls National Bank. What? Yeah, and these other bums are important people, too. Liz, please. Uh, we were just caroling, officer. Well, I don't know. I... Oh, oh, listen to that beautiful speaking voice. Huh? Oh, I'll bet you sing a wonderful bass. Oh, it's not so good. Oh, come on, give us the honor of singing one song with you. Well, I'm on duty, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle... Oh, go on and get out of here, and no more caroling. Oh, well, Merry Christmas. Jingle bells. Yes? What is it? What's the matter? I, I, I'd like to report it a stolen vehicle, please. Yeah. Uh, wait till I get my book out and I'll take down all the details. Okay. Uh, what's your name? Schmidt. No, no, no. Uh, no? No, my name is Gundelfinger. It wouldn't be Schmidt for a couple of weeks yet. <laughs> Why? Are you getting married? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just changing my name. It's still Gundelfinger. <laughs> uh, Gundelfinger? Yeah. Uh, G. U. You wouldn't like to come back in a couple of weeks and report this, would you? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I want to catch the teeth right now. Uh, okay. Uh, what was the license number? It didn't have a license number. It was just out in front of my shop with Ivy in it. <laughs> Ivy who? <laughs> just Ivy. Little leaves and stems. Yes, yes. Uh, what was the make? Uh, a flexible flyer. Huh? <laughs> yeah, what's their big model? Oh, sedan, huh? No... No, no, one horse open. <laughs> what kind of an automobile was this? It wasn't an automobile, it was a sleigh. 
And I, I gotta get it back. I need that sleigh for Christmas. Yes, of course. And when did you first notice it was missing, Mr. Claus? <laughs> no, 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 please, Gundelfinger. <laughs> you don't understand. It's an antique sleigh, and I got a customer who's going to buy it for a Christmas present. He's going to make a lamp out of it. <laughs> yes, of course. I'll keep my eyes open. I'll look in back of every horse I see. <laughs> oh, thank you. Still enough, heilige Someone to sing in my place. Oh, the horse. Well, I can explain. Yeah, no, let me guess. You just happened to hold out a cup and someone dropped a horse into it. Officer, I know it looks bad. Now you go home and stay there. I'm going to just charge this off to Christmas madness. First, some crackpot reports a stolen sleigh. Now I find you with a singing horse. A stolen sleigh? Uh, uh, who was it stolen from? You wouldn't believe the man's name if I told it to you. <laughs> now run along, and if I catch you out again, I'm going to run you in. Understand? Oh, yes, and thank you. Merry Gundo... Uh, uh, happy... Uh, Merry Christmas, officer. Come on, everybody. Let's go. Well, we're finally on our way. Oh, no. We're taking this sleigh back to Gimelfunger. The finger... <laughs> George, let's take a little ride. Nothing doing. Just a little eensy-teensy one. You heard what the cop said. This is stolen property. Oh, but that cop's the only one who knows, and, and we'll be out of his district in a minute. We can take the sleigh back later. No. Well, let's take a boat. What do you three in the back seat say? Oh, I'd like to go for a long ride. I like holding your hand under the blanket, Katie. Why, Katie. I like holding your hand, too, Katie. Why, Katie. I don't know what either of you are talking about. Both my hands are in my pocket. Let go of my hand, Mr. Negley. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Come on, horse. This is no time to stop. Get up. What's the matter with him? Stop! Stop that slide! Oh, look, look down at the corner. Here comes that cop. Let's oh. get out of here, Liz. Come on, horse. Get going. Oh, no, he stopped again. Get up, darn it. This is no time to play games. Get up! Stop in the name of the law! Oh, that's better. Hey, this horse is a stool pigeon. He's turning us over to that cop. I'm afraid this is part of the milkman's route. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, fine. The horse is stopping at each house to deliver milk. Let's get out and run for it. No, no, give me those reins, Liz. I'll get him off the route. And turn left at this corner. That'll do it. Okay. Come on, horse. We're turning here. Oh. He won't turn. 
thousand. Come on, horse. We're going left. Left, you hear? Careful, George. He's breaking out. <laughs> in the middle of an intersection with a hot sleigh. Hands up, all of you. I got you covered. Hi, officer. <laughs> officer, we can explain. It all started because I wanted to go and get a Yule log. Save your breath. You're coming to the station. But it's Christmas time. I know. And I'm going to give you a little present. It's a cell, Mark. Do not open till after Christmas. <laughs> Look, officer, we were really on our way back to Gundelfingers to return the sleigh. He's a very good friend of mine. Well, I'll go with you and be sure you do return it. And I'll give you exactly ten to get it out of this intersection. One. But we don't have a horse. How can we get it out? Two. That's your worry. Three. All right, fellas, get down there. What? Four. Oh, you get down there and pull. I'll steer. Five. Oh, wait till I get you homeless. I'll take this yet. Uh, would you and Negley take the other? Six. Two. Come on, boys. Let's be all you. Yes, Lucille, what's on the agenda for tonight? Well, you don't have to get nasty about it. I just wanted to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to the North Pole. The North Pole? Yes, to visit Santa Claus. I'll be a little girl who's waited all year for Santa. Hey, are you Santa Claus, huh? Are you? Huh? Yeah, I'm Santa. Oh. Well, where's your red suit? And where's your reindeer? They're all put away. I'm not going anyplace this Christmas. Oh, you're not? Nope. Ah! Ah! <laughs> well, why should I? I've been giving away things for as long as I can remember. Nobody ever gave me anything. If you go, I'll give you a, a, a live frog. I don't want one. Well, I'll, I'll give you some uh, bubble gum. No. Hardly chewed? No. I'll give you, I'll give you a sled and a big doll, and, I, and I'll even give you some jello. No, I'm not going... Did you say jello? You see, that always gets them. Real jello? Yep. And it's six delicious flavors. Uh, strawberry and, and raspberry and raspberry and strawberry and, and lime and orange and lemon. With the flavor locked in by a special process so it can't get out till your first delectable spoonful. Uh-huh. So good it makes you think of the real ripe fruit itself. Uh-huh. I can't wait to look for the big red letters on the box. I'll make my regular trip this year. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody.
have been listening to My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning, and based on characters created by Isabel Scott Roaring. Tonight's program was produced and directed by Jess Oppenheimer, who wrote the script with Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll, Jr. Original music was composed by Marlon Skiles and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The part of Katie the maid was played by Ruth Parrott. And be sure to listen to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband again next week, presented by... Listen to Lucille Ball and My Favorite Husband again next week. Bob Lamont speaking. Lucille Ball, making a comic mess of Christmas on her series, My Favorite Husband, in 1949. It's a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast with me, Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Errol Bailey. Our audio engineers are Kenny Pirog and Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. You're about to envision yourself in 1952 in a scene of swank sophistication as the man about Broadway, Mr. First Nighter, whisks you to the little theater off Times Square. There, you'll imagine the production of a play he took you to nearly every Christmas for 20 years. It's called Little Town of Bethlehem, and it comes from December 23, 1952, NBC and the First Nighter Program. Campana's First Nighter Program. From the Little Theater off Times Square. Starring Barbara Lottie and Olin Soule with an all-star cast. And sent you by Campana, the quality name in cosmetics. Theater time. And tonight, just ahead of Christmas, the little theater off Times Square is delighted to comply with the request of thousands of its friends from coast to coast by offering for the ninth time the now famous Christmas play, Little Town of Bethlehem. The Bible story of the carpenter and his wife and their baby born in a manger. Among radio listeners, including members of the clergy, the annual presentation of the little town of Bethlehem has become an occasion of deep spiritual significance, a time when whole families, young and old, gather at the radio sets to enjoy the inspiration which attends the retelling of those memorable happenings in Bethlehem on a night long ago. The hour of the performance is drawing near, so let me introduce our host for the evening, Mr. First Nighter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted that you can be with us tonight for the most celebrated performance of the year in the little theater. My cab is waiting. Won't you join me? All right, driver. Wait there. Read all about it here. Up Broadway and across 42nd Street. Yes, the great white way looks like one big dazzling Christmas tree tonight. And out just ahead is the little theater off Times Square. Well, here we are. 
your tickets ready, please. Have your tickets ready, please. Good evening, Mr. First Nighter. The usher will show you to your seat. Thank you. We'll go right in. the First Nighter program, Camp Hannah Sales Company, together with all of their employees, wish to contribute to your enjoyment of the first Peace Christmas since 1940 by the presentation of the sacred story of the birth of Christ in a manger in Bethlehem. We enter eagerly into the opportunity of offering you this evening the Christmas play, Little Town of Bethlehem by Anthony Wayne. In tonight's performance, Barbara Luddy will play the part of Mary, part of Joseph will be played by Olin Soleil. An all-star supporting cast, including Sidney Elstrom, Hugh Studebaker, Herbert Butterfield, Willard Waterman, and Philip Lord, will portray the other characters. Since tonight's performance will be interrupted only by music between the acts, here is Mr. Billsbury with a special Yuletide greeting. Thank you and good evening. It is appropriate, I think, and it is heartfelt, too, this greeting I want to convey to you. It comes from Campana Sales Company, the sponsor, and all of their employees. They join together this evening in wishing you a very Merry Christmas, and they want to express with warm gratitude their appreciation of your loyalty to them during the past year. You and your friends all over the United States and Canada have chosen and used Campana products in ever-increasing quantities. And we cannot let this year end pass by without saying thank you. During the past year, there became available again some of the ingredients which, for a long time, had been dedicated wholly to the war effort. As a result, we've been able to again stock the stores nationwide with what many women call their favorite wintertime hand lotion, rich, concentrated, original Campana Balm. We're delighted, as we know you are, that this famous cold-weather lotion could be reinstated on the toilet's goods counters in time for the winter weather this year. If by chance you've not been aware that original Campana Bomb is back in circulation again, just ask for it in its sparkling green and white carton at your nearest store. During 1945, we've made countless friends also with the famous solitaire cake makeup. Solitaire cake makeup contains lanolin, and more and more women every day are discovering the sure, smooth complexion beauty that solitaire gives them so easily, so quickly, and hour after hour without redoing. In the more recent months just past, countless friends have written us their compliments about the new and exciting solitaire fashion point lipstick, the lip-shaped lipstick, the only stick with a point that is shaped to fit your lips. Such acceptance is more than gratifying to all the workers at Campana because we all have a very real pride in producing for you the very finest beauty aids that our hands can fashion. And now... May your Christmas be the merriest on record, and your new year brighter than ever before. The lights are out, and the curtain rises on the first act of Little Town of Bethlehem.
What is your name? Josiah, son of Obed, son of Asa, the son of Zacharias, the son of... Hold! Caesar does not ask who your ancestors were. Give me only your name. Josiah of Bethlehem. The name of your wife? Leah. Your trade and the number of your children? I am a shepherd with seven children. My flock's in the hills nearby and Enough. How much property do you own? My house and 50 sheep. That is all. Who is the next? And what is your name? Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Matan, the son of Eliezer. Hold, hold. Must every Jew who registers recite his lineage to me? Did you not hear me say that all I wanted was your name? But I am descended from the kings of Judea, from the great King David. I know, I know. So is everyone in Bethlehem. But the Roman emperor cares nothing about that. This is a Roman census. I'm sorry. I could have been through the enrollment by now if you Jews were not so garrulous. Come, is this your wife? My name is Mary. I, too, am of the line of David. Your voice sounds tired. Have you come far? From the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Sit down on that bench and rest a moment. Thank you. Now, Joseph, what is your trade? How many children and how much property? I am a carpenter. I have no property except my tools and the animal on which my wife has ridden from Nazareth. There are no children, as yet. Very well. That is all. Pardon, my lord, but we have no place to sleep. There was no room at the inn. Can you help me? Uh, the town is filled with those who returned for the enrollment. I can do nothing. Oh, wait. Do you see that man talking with the soldier at the roadside? That is Simon, a rich merchant. He has a large house. He may have room for him. Thank you. Come, Mary. You have found a place for us to rest? We will ask for a place to rest. Pardon, sir. You are the merchant, Simon? Yes. What do you want? I am Joseph of Nazareth, and this is my wife, Mary. The Roman governor said you might have some room in your house where we could sleep. I have no room. The governor and his men are staying with me. If you only had some small corner where we could rest. My wife is very weary, sir. I have said that my house is filled. You may sleep in the stable if you wish. That is all I can do for you. The stable? Let us go there, Joseph. We have tried so many places. A stable, Mary? It is not what I would like. We must be content. Lift me up to the saddle. There. If you lead the way, the little beast will follow. Oh, Simon. I'm tired of listening to this babble. Claudius, take my place here. I'm going to rest. Taking the census is an exhausting task, my lord. Everyone in Judea must spring from Bethlehem. People have been pouring into the town all day. Bethlehem is the city of David. And everyone who is registered here claims descent from him. That is true. And the dream of every mother of David's line is that she will bear the king of Micah's prophecy. Micah's prophecy? Have you never heard it? But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judea, yet out of thee shall come forth he that is to be ruler in Israel. <laughs> oh, so that's the prophecy, eh? You're all waiting for this new king. Many believe he will come, my lord. And you, Simon? What about you? Do you believe it? Uh, I? Oh, it is rather the uh, shepherds who talk of me. I see. You're very careful, Simon. Perhaps you fear Herod, your king. 
Herod despises the prophecy of Micah. He hates Bethlehem. It would be well to keep this legend from him, then. But um, tell me about the carpenter and his wife from Nazareth. Did they find lodging? I offered them my stable. You... Your stable? Was there no room in your house? The stable is good enough for such as they. My house is kept for Romans, my lord. <laughs> oh, it's little wonder, Simon, that you are a rich and powerful man in Bethlehem. You have all the necessary qualities. Thank you. If you are ready now to go to my house... Oh, not yet. The enrollment will be going on far into the night. Oh, this town of Bethlehem is really beautiful, Simon. Ah, my lord, in the days of David, Bethlehem was great. One can see that. But the sons of David are not the warriors that he was. Ah, these crumbling walls. Broken battlements. <laughs> and yet you believe that your next king will come from here. No, that... As I have told you, he's but the tale of shepherds. A Roman soldier need not... Hark! Some nobleman is at the city gate. Who can it be? We shall soon see. Make way for King Herod! It is King Herod. King Herod has come to Bethlehem. I shall have a king, the ruler of Judea, as my guest tonight. Oh, I am the proudest man in the world. comes down on the first act of the little town of Bethlehem. Good to me, Joseph. You're tired, Mary. There. Now lie down. Could you not bring the beast in out of the cold? It is cold. But it is a clear, still night, Mary. Everything mm -hmm. is peaceful. And there's a wonderful star over the courtyard. Can you see it through the open door? Yes, I can see it. All the others are a white mist. 
Is it standing uh, still? It seems to stand away. still. Get away. Make way. Stand aside. What make is way. that, Joseph? Just someone bringing aside. horses into the stable. To the merchant himself, Joseph. He is leading the horses over here. I pray, sir. You're frightening my wife. Oh, oh. the man from there. I'm sorry, but uh, you will have to move. King Herod honors my house tonight. These are the horses of his party. King Herod? But his horses must have the best all. But what are we to do? My wife... All my life I have prayed that I might be honored by a visit from the king. Surely you would not turn us out. Move down to the um, other end of the stable. That stall where you see a manger. Uh, you can sleep there. That will do, Joseph. Let us move. I'm sorry, Mary. I seem able to do so little for you. It does not matter. I am supremely happy. I wish I had a better place to offer you, but one does not often have a visit from a king. He is at supper now with the Roman governor. I must go back to them. That is true, Simon. One does not often have a visit from a king. I regret to hear that you have so few about you whom you can trust, King Harry. There is no man whom a king can trust, Quirinius. Those whom I have loved most dearly have betrayed me. My wife, one of my sons, plotted against me. That is very sad. <laughs> and paid with their heads. Now my youngest son, him who I trusted above all others, was turned against me, and he too has uh, paid with his head? <laughs> Not yet. I have but to reach the ear of Caesar. I see, I see. Ah, you understand me, Quirinius. Let me tell you this. Great Caesar has no more faithful friend in all Judea than I, Herod. I'm sure of that. Bend close, Quirinius. There is something I would say to you. I suspect there may be treason brewing here in Bethlehem. These men have a myth about their descent from David. They plot continually for a new king. The Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. I've heard the prophecy. But don't you see? They're plotting against me. It amounts to little. They've been talking of this for hundreds of years. Mm. I am not so sure... When I called the scribes of the people together and asked them where this child was to be born, they said, in Bethlehem. Is that why you've come to Bethlehem tonight? Mm. Perhaps. And perhaps I shall stay longer than a night just to make sure these Jews are not plotting. What is that babble outside? Probably some of your Greek mercenaries gambling with my men. Simon! Simon! Where are you? I am here, O king. Then quiet those brawlers in your courtyard. I shall do so at once. Quiet! Quiet for the king! This Roman soldier does not understand us, Simon. Shh! I know your faces. You are shepherds from the hills. What do you want? We bring tidings of great joy, Simon. As we watched our flocks in the fields tonight, an angel of the Lord stood beside us. Shh. 
speak softly. And the bright light shone around us so that we were afraid. But the angel said, Fear not. I bring you good news which shall be a joy to all people. For there is born in Bethlehem a Savior. You are mad. Do you want us all put to the sword? And this shall be a sign to you. You will find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. In a manger? And there was a song in the air, a heavenly throng, Simon, singing. Silence, you are mad. Would the king of Micah's prophecy be born in a manger? But we spoke with an angel of the Lord. You must forget what happened. Go back to your flocks. There is no king born in a manger. Only a carpenter and his wife from Nazareth are resting in the stable. We have come to worship the newborn Messiah. Be off! There is no king but Herod. And if Herod should hear you, it would go hard with all the men of Bethlehem. Be off! Off! Ah, Simon. Who are your visitors? Oh, oh, oh Quirinius, is it you? You uh, followed me? Only to help you if my help were needed. Who were those men? Uh, Just shepherds. Moon-crazed shepherds. They told a wild tale of hearing angel voices. I thought I heard them speak of a messiah. How does it go? But thou, Bethlehem, out of thee shall come he that is to be ruler in Israel? (laughs) <laughs> My lord is pleased to jest, but I pray you will not speak of this. I am so afraid of the king. My lord, I beg you not to speak of it to Herod. I think Herod has already heard. And the curtain comes down on the second act of tonight's play.
But suppose, Simon, I must ask you. Those shepherds, you are sure they were not conspirators in disguise? No, no, King. They were only shepherds. Word has been brought me that they sought the king of Israel. Uh, they said uh, that as they tended their flocks that night, an angel appeared to announce that the king honored Bethlehem by his presence. <laughs> an angel announced my presence, sir? <laughs> Did you hear that, Quirinius? Good omen, is it not? It may, perhaps, mean much to your kingdom. All Judea knows your greatness, O king. But why? Simon, why did you not bring them to me, then? Oh, they were but rough men with the smell of their flocks about them. I did not want to disturb you when you were feasting. I see. You were sure it was I they sought? There was no talk of the ruler of Israel who is to come out of Bethlehem? Surely your majesty does not believe that fantastic prophecy. I am wary of everything, Quirinius. Today, three astrologers from the east came to me and asked for the newborn king of the Jews. They had seen his star rise in the east, they said, and followed it here. You remember the shepherd spoke of that star? It is only the old legend. Mm, perhaps. <laughs> I told the wise men to look diligently for the child and to send me word when they had found him so that I, too, might do him homage. <laughs> homage. I would put him to death. I would kill him if I had to make away with all the boys under two years old in Bethlehem. Spoken like a king, O'Hara. Uh, but now, if you'll permit me, I'll go to bed. Nine days of feasting find me weary, and tomorrow there's much to do. Good night. You move on to Jerusalem tomorrow, Quirinius? Yes. Will you honor me with your company? We shall ride together. I thank you. Good night. Are you resting, Mary? You're quiet. I think of the shepherd, Joseph. I want to treasure up all they said and ponder it. David's throne, an endless reign, the old prophecy coming from their lips. I am the happiest woman in the world tonight. He is the most beautiful baby in the world tonight, Mary. He is saintly. See the even flow of his breath, Joseph. You feel a mingled joy and, and terror watching it. The joy of life and the terror of, of death. Do not speak of death. Joseph, you're troubled. You're frightened. What is it? It is Herod, feasting there in Simon's house these past days. I had a dream. An angel of the Lord came to me and said, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt, for Herod will look for the child in order to kill him. Joseph, what is that? I do not know. Shh, quiet. We seek a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. The Christ Jesus. How, how did you know his name? Who are you? We are three kings from the east. We have followed his star and ridden fast to find and worship the king of the Jews. The star stood still over Bethlehem. So it is written by the prophet. Come, wise men. Here is the child. The child who shall be king of the world. His goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And he shall tread upon the high places of the earth. Joseph, 
Do you hear what they say? Yes, Mary. Let us lay down our gifts before him. Caskets of gold. Gold as tribute to a king. Frankincense for the priest. And myrrh for the body's belly. We must make haste and ride away. We have been warned in a dream to return to our own country. Lest Herod destroy us. You hear what he says, Mary. Even as we were warned to flee into Egypt. Lest Herod seek the child to destroy him. It was close to morning. Are you equal to leaving at once? Yes, yes, let us go. We must not think of ourselves, only of him. Let us go without delay. Herod is sleeping now. If you would escape his malice and hatred, we will wait for you at the city gate. I have the animal ready, Mary. Come, let me lift you up. There. And put the child in your arms. Wait, Joseph. That man outside. The Roman governor. Ah, man of Nazareth. You're leaving before dawn? We have obeyed the decree of Caesar Augustus and enrolled. We must now return. We have a long journey before us. Yes, a long journey. I did not mean to disturb you. I was restless and could not sleep. Oh, what have we here? So, a new little carpenter. Yes, a new little carpenter. And, like every Jew, I suppose you dream that he will be the prophesied ruler of Israel? We have great expectations. Well, after a stay in this city, listening to your prophecies and visions, I only wonder that a new king has not been born. What faith you Jews have. You have no fear of our faith? Like Herod? Romans are soldiers. You Jews dream too much. But go your way, good carpenter. I even hope, perhaps, that your son may be the long-awaited leader of Israel. down the curtain on our Christmas play in the little theater off Times Square. The audience has responded to the spirit of reverence with which our talented players have portrayed their roles. If you like tonight's performance, a letter from you would be appreciated. Now the members of the First Nighter cast send you and your family their most sincere good wishes for the holiday season. program, a copyrighted radio feature, brought you tonight, a play taken from the Bible.
if you enjoyed the performance, a letter from you would be appreciated. A word from our audience is always appreciated. CBS is the biggest show in town. Listen again for First Nighter next Saturday at the same time and stay tuned for the Dick Ames Show, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Little Town of Bethlehem, from Christmas Week of 1952 and the First Nighter Program a traditional offering of a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. Jill Arald Bailey co-produces our show. Kenny Pirog and Douglas Bell are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And please check out our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. We're so used to hearing great voices and great readings in old-time radio, it's easy, week after week on this show, to take them for granted. A little later tonight, we'll hear the master of masters, Orson Welles, reading Oscar Wilde's story, The Happy Prince. And right now, we're going to hear another virtuoso performance from the former child star Roddy McDowell, who was all of 23 when this family theater episode was produced. That's the series that introduced the saying, The family that prays together stays together, and you'll hear it intoned by the host for this show, the actor Ruth Hussey. It's a story that the series offered a few times over the years called Lullaby of Christmas. Here it is, from December 19th, 1951, The Mutual Network and Family Theater. Family Theater presents Ruth Hussey, Roddy McDowell, and Lois Butler. The Mutual Network, in cooperation with Family Theater, brings you a Christmas fantasy set in a framework of Christmas music. To tell you about our presentation of Charles Taswell's classic Lullaby of Christmas, we present Ruth Hussey. Thank you, Tony Lafrano. You know, one of the wonderful things about Christmas is the pretty web of legend, song, and story that has grown up around it without obscuring for any of us, I hope, the truth of the matter. At another time of year, we might call the joyousness of spirit we experience an excess. But in the expansive mood that Christmas brings to everything, I'd I'd use a more gentle word, a more generous description. Won't you agree that the right word is abundance? I think it's out of this abundance that most Christmas fantasy springs. Out of the fact that the real truth of Christmas is so wonderful, so dramatic, so quickening to the heart and to the imagination. And that leads us to Lullaby of Christmas, which Roddy McDowell is going to narrate for us. story is as old as Christmas, and yet is neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones 
the water, the wind, the rain, and the snow. By the grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. They have told the story for almost 2,000 Christmases past. And they'll still be telling it 2,000 times, 2,000 Christmases to come. It will be told by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine, or of maple or mimosa. By water as it crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river and ocean, and all the scattered seven seas. By rain tiptoeing across the roofs and skylights of every building north, east, south, and west of Greenwich. By the singing grasses of southern pampas, bush, and savannah, and by the icy twang of sleet and stubble on prairie, heath, and plain. It will be told by the sucking swamp mud, and the hard-ringing frozen earth, and the tumbling rock, and the migrant sand. It will be told whether or not men listen, or whether or not there are men to listen. For as the storytellers are eternal, so is their story eternal. Their story of the lullaby of Christmas. Whenever someone looked in his direction and bellowed, Hey, you! He came running because he was eager to please. But A.U. wasn't his name. No one knew from whence he came, or when, or how, or why. It was quite possible that he was a forlorn and useless bit of jetsam from one of the caravans that were forever appearing and disappearing like mirages, with camel bells clanging, dogs barking, and drivers howling for right of way through the narrow, crowded roadways of Bethlehem. He might have been eight, or he could have been nine. A childish collection of angles and knobs with an animated pipe stem on each corner for an arm or leg. His clothing was an assortment of tattered rags fastened together with knots, thorns, and bits of cord. And it stayed with him when he ran merely because his greater speed was never quite equal to the greater law of gravity. And he was always running to something from something. His sandals, which had been owned and discarded by three much larger wearers, flapping up and down and right and left, and his bobbing head perching precariously on his scrawny little neck like a fledgling heron on one leg. And yet, there was something about the boy that made people notice him. There was something appealing in his dark eyes and something about his cherub's mouth that unlocked the heart. Now and then, someone along the street would stop him and ask his name. But when A.U. tried to answer, from out of his cherub's mouth, instead of words, would come a horrible sound. A scourging, piercing, ear-scraping, howling and shrieking. Yes. A.U. was without the gift of speech. And at night, in the stable of the inn where he made his bed, he would curl up in the fragrant hay and think of all the beautiful magic words that he would like to say. Just suppose. Just suppose that a miracle should take place during the night. Just suppose that he should wake up tomorrow morning and walk over to that stall and say... Good morning, Mr. Cow. Oh, wonderful. And then he'd run outside to the pen and call out... Hello, Mr. Sheep. Oh, magnificent morning. He could talk. He could say anything and everything that he wanted to say. 
And wouldn't the innkeeper's wife be surprised when she handed out the scraps for his breakfast and loudly and clearly he said, I'm terrible obliged, ma'am. Just terrible obliged. And then, when he was called to do some task or errand, he could tell the innkeeper and his guests that his name wasn't A.U. Why, that wasn't any kind of name at all. It was just an easy and careless way they all had of shouting, Hey, you! Hey, you! My name isn't A.U. Hey, don't you hear me? Hey, you! My name's Ezekiel. But the most stupendous, overwhelming thing of all, he would be able to sing. Yes, sing as no one had ever sung before, with every word and note so clear and sweet and perfect that everyone in Bethlehem would stand rock still to listen. He would be able to sing with the other children when they played their games, and he would be able to sing right along with the foreign music maker, the one with the lyre and the tame bear who walked the roadways and sang for coins. Oh, a Babylon maiden will hasten the hours with kisses of honey and cinnamon flowers. And at night in the inn, when the roaring fire was juggling fat hot sparks in the black cavern chimney, and the innkeeper and his guests were overflowing with wine and song, he'd never need hide himself in the darkest corner in fear that they would make him join in just so that they could laugh at him. No. He'd be able to stand right by the fire and listen, because he'd be able to sing that song much better than anyone in the room. Oh, fill the bowl up to the brim, let memory blend with wine, and drink to glories of the past. And so, each night, before A.U. closed his eyes, he said a prayer for the gift of speech and song, and faithfully promised that if God saw fit to grant these great blessings to a small boy, that he would never use any words that weren't kind and gentle and reverent, and that he would never sing any songs that were not beautiful, joyful, and harmonious. Then he burrowed deep into the hay and fell asleep, warm and content in his belief that on this night God had heard him. In the morning, when the rising sun reached through the doorway and touched his shoulder to wake him up, he would open his eyes... And then he'd open his mouth, and then very loudly and thankfully he'd say, Oh, thank you, God. Thank you very much. But morning after morning, God disappointed him. And finally, after months of mornings had vanished into Egypt, Ayu knew that he would always be just as he was as inarticulate as a tumblebug, as a wood tick, as a worm. For a few nights, A.U. cried himself to sleep in black discouragement. And then, then he resolved that he would never open his mouth again to make people laugh. And when his work was done, he trudged out of Bethlehem and wandered over the fields and hills. Travelers sometimes wondered when they saw his lonely little figure against the sky. And none of them knew that he really wasn't lonely at all. Why, he couldn't be lonely among friends. For he discovered that a brook running over its pebbles and stones could chatter and prattle and sing to him. And if he answered, or even if he sang... The brook didn't care a ripple that the noises he made were strange and unmusical. It went right along singing as loudly and joyfully as ever. 
Yes, and the winds were forever whispering or humming or caroling. Sometimes they were so filled with music that they shook their great trees and woke them up, and they tossed the great limbs and made every leaf and twig join in with the singing. So Ayu sang too. And the trees didn't care, and the winds didn't care. Neither did the rain when it thrummed on the rocks or strummed through the tall grasses. It went right on just as though his horrible din was the most sublime music it has ever heard. And then, when he was tired, Ayu would lie on the ground with his ear pressed tight against the moss and listen to the small, faraway voices. The little, scarcely audible voices deep in the ever-moving, ever-singing earth itself. The song they sang was very sweet, but so faint and distant that try as he might, he could never learn the melody. And so, listening to his friends, the tongueless ones, Ayu would fall fast asleep. in the days that followed, he was a little scarecrow stuffed with happiness. A standing on tiptoe happiness that was more prolific than a cottontail rabbit. An invincible conquering happiness that could summon up more legions than the Roman emperor. It was so far above the miracle he had asked for in his prayers that A.U. took a long time every night to thank God for his generosity. He thanked him so meticulously and particularly and abundantly that his small fingers developed a cramp and on each round, knobby knee was a round, knobby callus. And then, without the slightest warning, coming with cockcrow as any other day, wearing the same identical colors of dawn as yesterday's beneficent morning, came the dreadful day. It was begun by the innkeeper kicking methodically at the mound of hay where A.U. had buried himself and bawling. A.U., come on, crawl out of there and get to work. On your feet or I'll slice out your tongue and sell it for tallow. Then the dreadful day was helped along by the innkeeper's fat and fuming wife. At mid-morning, when A.U.'s stomach was tied in a double-bone knot with hunger, he stuck one eye around the frame of the kitchen door to let it beg for his breakfast, and the innkeeper's wife doused him with slimy dishwater and screamed, Don't come grunting and squealing for scraps at my door when I'm busy, you miserable gopher rubbish! Get out with the rest of the swine! And in the afternoon, as A.U. was racing through the town on one of his endless errands, a tired thong snapped on one of his oversized sandals. And the sandal went skittering through the air, purposely ignoring half a dozen people who would have merely scowled or scolded, and dropped deliberately and maliciously on the proud and helmeted head of a swaggering centurion. The centurion plucked A.U. out of the crowd by his rags and lifted him up off the ground and held him dangling at arm's length, demanding his name and his dwelling place. And when A.U. tried to answer, but only made meaningless sounds, the centurion shook him until he flipped and flopped like a limp, grief-stricken starfish. And he bellowed, Look at me, oh, you driveling, babbling, voiceless offshoot of a scurvy, dribble-mouthed alley rat. If ever again you foul my eyes... I'll cage you and send you to Rome to feed the emperor's lions. And through the remaining hours of the dreadful day's afternoon, 
No matter how fast A.U. ran, the story of his affliction and humiliation always ran faster. It was a street, an alley, or even a doorway ahead of him. He seemed to run through a, a forest of pointing fingers that threatened to pin him to a wall, under a sky of leering eyes that fell and clung to him like leeches, by endless craters of jeering mouths that spouted laughter like bottomless goatskin waterbags. That night, as each hour slowly yielded to an older one, and the dreadful day neared its end, A.U. was kept late at his tasks in the inn. Anyone could believe that half the known world had journeyed to Bethlehem, and the inn was so crowded that the ancient floor seemed to sag from the mass weight of weary bone and unwashed flesh. A.U. longed to bury his shame and tears in the nestling warmth of the stable hay. But his tired, trembling legs carried him about with staggering armloads of steaming bowls and slopping mugs. They tripped him up, hands slapped his ears to ringing, and his knees jolted his aching ribs. The one who discovered and recognized A.U. was a huge mountain of a man whose eyes rolled like quicksilver in their bead beds of jellied fat. One hairy paw crushed a crumb of stew from his beard while the other fastened on A.U.'s hair and lifted him, his legs still running desperately in the air, to the tabletop. Then, in a voice that would have silenced Balaam's donkey, he brayed to the listening ears, Look here, my friends! Behold this miserable insect that I have captured for your examination and amusement. Ah, but you must not laugh, my friends. You must gather close with ears agape. Because this struggling thing has a wondrous golden voice, never equaled on land or sea or up in heaven. <laughs> oh, yes, I swear it is true. A centurion made it chirp today, and its music was so sweet, it broke my heart and made the angels weep in ecstasy. <laughs> Tell me, would you like to hear it sing? <laughs> Do you not hear me? Will you sing or shall I slit your tongue like a crow's so you can speak like a human, eh? Sing, I tell you. Sing, sing. And so, standing on the table, A.U. tried to sing and at every tuneless howl, the crowd shocked its mockery. At every unmelodious screech, it roared its derision. At every discordant squeak, it loosed a thunderbolt of laughter that crashed and splintered on his head. And his mind was fear. And his body was shame. And his blood was tears. But he went on. He went on until the crowd had rung the last outstanding guffaw, the final satisfying chuckle, the ultimate forced snigger from his wretched little body. And when it released him, he ran blindly off through the dark labyrinth of Bethlehem, a terror-stricken shadow racing for the quiet hills and the warm, comforting voices of the tongueless one. Tonight there were no voices, even though A.U. held his breath, even though he strained his ears, 
he could hear no sound from the tongueless ones. Even when he threw himself down and laid his ear to the ground, there was no small sound to hear. Even the little voices deep in the earth had stopped their whispering and were quiet. Then Ayu howled and babbled and tried to make the tongueless ones answer him. But they only waited and listened. And he croaked and screamed at them. But still they waited and listened. And he wept and shrieked to them. But they kept silent while they waited and listened. Just listened and waited. Then Ayu rolled over on his back to listen too. And he saw that a great white star had risen and was shining over Bethlehem. A star so bright it blinded him. And so he closed his eyes. And exhausted by the dreadful day, he went to sleep. It was close to morning when A.U. returned to the inn. He tiptoed across the frosty stones of the dark courtyard and crept into the stable. For a moment, his fear held him motionless. For the stable was bathed with a bright glowing radiance that revealed every corner and straw and peg and moat of dust. And it flowed like molten sunlight over a man and a woman and a manger where a child was cradled. Neither the man nor the woman appeared surprised to see Ayu. It was as though they had expected him to come and were waiting for him. So he stole nearer and he looked down at the child. And the child lifted small hands and smiled at him. Then Ayu felt that he must speak to this child, so he whispered, Hello there. And the words he spoke were as clear and melodious as the water of the brook. Then he said, Hello, child. And the words that came from his lips were as sweet as the winds, as perfect as each raindrop. And as soft as the long flowing grasses. Then Ayu knew why he'd been born never to speak until this moment. And why the tongueless ones of God's world of water and earth and air had all sung to him. And why tonight they had all been still and silent and waiting. Now the waiting was over. Now they were his voice and he was their song. And this was their song to the child of the manger. Close your eyes, precious one, for the world is your cradle. Close your eyes, blessed babe, while we
Yes, this story is as old as Christmas. And yet, it's neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones. The water, the wind, the rain, and the snow. The grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. It will be told this Christmas by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine, or maple or mimosa. By water as it crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river and ocean, and all the scattered seven seas. By rain as it patters across the roofs and skylights. Yes, and by the singing grasses of the southern pampas, bush and savannah, and the icy twang of sleeted stubble on prairie, heath and plain. The few ears that listen may wonder at the strange, childlike quality in the voices of all these storytellers. But that's so very easy to understand. It is the bright, joyful, exultant tone of the boy who sang for them one early morning, one Christmas morning, one glorious morning in Bethlehem. Thank you, Roddy, for steering us so imaginatively. Christmas time is associated by all of us with first beginnings and with the home. It's really a time of return. In spirit, we can all return to that little family of Bethlehem, centered at the Christmas crib. And that's where Lois Butler leads us as she sings Jesu Bambino, the baby Jesus.
you. Thank you, Lois Butler. When Charles Taswell's script said so powerfully, is that all creation daily thanks its author in its mute and mighty way. Others might see monotony, but to the discerning eye, it's beauty. Just the other day, a friend asked me, isn't prayer a monotonous thing? I didn't think so. No, on the matter of monotony, I don't think God blames the levelness of the plain for not being a solitary mountain peak or a flight of friendly swallows for not being lonely eagles. There is beauty in order and in change, beauty in variety and beauty in sameness. These are but some of the reasons I can't believe that to God prayer is ever monotonous. I know that to each new-made father, the child in his arms is completely unlike the billions born before him. A family kneeling together, saying the same prayers, beget among themselves not a feeling of monotony, but a feeling of splendid unity. That's why family theater keeps saying, the family that prays together stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. From Hollywood, Family Theater has brought you transcribed Charles Taswell's Lullaby of Christmas, narrated by Roddy McDowell, with Ruth Hussey as hostess. Our soloist was Lois Butler. Others in our cast were Michael Edwards, Ted DeCorsia, Irene Tedrow, and Bill Johnstone. Music was composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman. Family Theater's director was Joseph F. Mansfield. This is Tony Lofrano expressing the wish of Family Theater that the blessing of God may be upon you and your home and inviting you to be with us next Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over most of these stations when Family Theater will present our special Christmas program, The Joyful Hour, starring Licia Albanese, Anne Blythe, McDonald Carey, Jeff Chandler, Gene Cagney, Bing Crosby, Bobby Driscoll, Jimmy Durante, June Haber, Ruth Hussey, William Ludlingen, Pat O'Brien, Rod O'Connor, Maureen O'Hara, Maureen O'Sullivan, Gigi Perot, Lanny Ross, Robert Ryan, and Leonard Warren. And next week, Family Theater will present Star of Wonder, starring Pat O'Brien. Join us, won't you? This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Lullaby of Christmas from Family Theater in 1951. I'm Murray Horwitz, wishing you a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, and reminding you that this is a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast, and that you're listening to WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, in HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. One of the great inspirational Christmas dramas in old-time radio was a story that several shows used, but none more successfully than Grand Central Station, the favorite show, I think, of NPR's Susan Stamberg. They did this script every year at Christmas time, and so do we, pretty much, with this December 24, 1949 production. It's called Miracle for Christmas, and it comes from CBS and Grand Central Station. From New York, 
Pillsbury's Best Enriched Flour brings you Grand Central Station. you will long remember. After the train from Albany pulled in, no one, not a single person, actually saw the young man with soft brown hair and soft brown eyes come through the gate. Still unseen, he walks the length of the great waiting room. Now strangely tranquil as travel ebbs on Christmas Eve. Quietly, he goes out the door, down the street, and then up the broad marble stairs of the hospital. When the girl at the switchboard turns to him... What can I do for you, sir? Without saying a word, he gives her a card. She's startled by the name on it and instantly announces him to the hospital superintendent. Dr. Mason is here to see you. Mason? Dr. Mason who applied for an internship? Yes, Dr. Garrett, it is Dr. Mason from Albany. But that... But that's impossible. Shall I ask him about the telegram? No, no, no. No, I'll do it. Send him in, please. Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Garrett will see you, sir. First door to the left. Garrett. Dr. Mason? You are Dr. Mason? I'm sorry that I was delayed, Dr. Garrett. But I... But just ten minutes ago, I... Yes. Ten minutes ago, you received a telegram. Well, that's right. I know. From your mother. I know. But, man, I... Why, look at it. It says that you... That I was killed. Do you mind if I tear up that telegram, Dr. Garrett? Well, I... I don't understand. I, I was so unnerved by that wire. I, I counted so much on your being here tonight, Christmas Eve. A night always busy with calls. You are short of interns. Oh, yes. Mason, these are the slums. Walk through block after block and you won't see a doctor shingle. Not one. 
The people here are too poor. They know only one healer. The intern and his ambulance. And tonight, night of mercy and goodwill, they would have cried out in vain. Well, now that you've come, I won't have to say to the suffering, wait, wait. There's only one ambulance tonight, and that's out on a call. Wait and suffer. I have no one to send to you because Dr. Mason was killed. Uh, uh, it's good that you're here, Mason. It, it's good. It's good to be here, Dr. Garrett. Well, you better get started. Take this slip down to the storeroom. See that they give you a warm sheepskin coat. Thank you. And a pair of mittens. From there, you go to the ambulance room. I'll have your driver waiting for you. His name is Mac. My name is Mac. The chief says I drive your crate tonight. Crate? Crate, jalopy, sick buggy, ambulance, take your pick. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> you green interns, you're all the same. The first time you spy a ambulance, your eyes pop wide like you've seen a heavenly chariot or something. Not me. I've been driving this old baby for eight rotten years. An ambulance, Mac, is a sacred thing. It is a chariot of mercy. Uh-oh, two bells, that says... Come on, Mason, that's your first call. 234 South Street. 234 South Street. 234 South Street. Look, pal, help me out by watching out for cars cutting in at the cross streets. We don't stop for no red light. Look, Doc, what did I tell you? Watch it or we'll both be killed. Holy cow, you new interns. You're all alike. You're always dreaming. You put on a white coat and pants and your head goes up in the clouds. Why are you so bitter, Mac? Why shouldn't I be bitter? If it wasn't for you, I'd be home with the wife right now. You truly believe that only because of me... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you hadn't showed up, this ambulance would be parked in the garage for crying out loud. I would have had the night off like on a decent job. To you, driving an ambulance is just a job like any other? Yeah, nothing but... Boy, will I be glad when the shift is over. But, Mac... This is Christmas Eve. You're telling me. This is one night at least you could forget that driving an ambulance is a job. This one night you could look upon it as an errand of mercy. An errand of mercy? <laughs> you know where we're going? To help someone afflicted. Afflicted? Afflicted with alcohol, you mean? I'll give you two to one and we're making a stew call. Stew call? Yeah, Mason. We're risking our next tearing through traffic to give some trunk a whiff of smelling sauce. Any man who cries out for help, whether he be brimful of drink or empty of blood, his call shall be answered. Yes, says you. Here's your bag, Doc. Thank you, Mac. I won't need it. But he's out cold, Mason. Come on, give him a whiff of the stuff. Quick and we blow. Quiet, Mac. Come now. Open your eyes, sir. <laughs> because the drunk, sir. Look, ah! Mason, here's the spirit of ammonia. Hold it under his nose, will you? <laughs> that always wakes him up. Quiet, Mac. <sighs> Come, sir. Open your eyes. That's right, uh, mate. You just talk uh, pretty to him and he'll open his eyes. Uh, where am I? <laughs> Why is everybody laughing? What's the matter? Nothing, nothing. Just put your arm around my shoulder. That's it. Now, let me help you to stand up straight. There. 
Now, you feel better? Why, I... Suddenly, I... I feel all right. I feel fine. My head is so clear. Of course, of course. All you needed was to stand on your own two feet. To be strong. Be of good cheer. Gosh, Doc. That's sure wonderful medicine you give me. Madison, what kind of gag you pull and he didn't give you no medicine? There was nothing the matter with you. You toss off a beer and you lay down in the street like you're out calling. We waste an ambulance on you. I got a mind to take a poke at you. That'll be enough, Mac. Tell me, sir, what is your name? Well, if it's all the same to you... Come on, come on, come on, come on. Give me your name. He's got to make out his report. Pete Lantern, doctor. Peter, you won't lose faith again. You will stand up, self-reliant. And you will face life courageously and with new hope. Come on, Mason. We ain't got all night. Let's get going. Duck, duck. Yes, Peter? Uh, a Merry Christmas to you, Duck. Thank you, sir. Mason, I'd like to speak to you. Yes. Mason, Mac tells me you didn't even open your bag on your first call. No, it wasn't necessary. Well, now, don't misunderstand me, Mason. I, I can't begin to tell you how thankful I am that you're with us this evening, but... Uh, but from now on, I'm not to use suggestion. Or whatever it was you did use. Please follow standard materia medica in treating your cases. We... You're... You're not offended. Of course not. Oh, that's fine, Dr. Mason. That... Oh, that's your call again. Third floor. 19 Water Street, third floor. 19 Water Street, third floor. Well, Mac, you seem to be good at guessing. You were right the last time. What sort of call is this one going to be? There's no guessing, it's experience. This time it's no drunk. Oh? What do you think it is? A bird. Or maybe a debt. Christmas Eve. And someone is to live or die. It is better that one should live on Christmas Eve. Mac, let it be a birth we're going to. No difference to me, Doc. A bird or a debt. I just try. How long have you been doing it, Mac? Ah. Oh, like I told you. Eight rotten years, that's how long. What you call eight rotten years were truly eight glorious years, filled with service to your fellow men. Cut the chatter, Mason. This is it. Number 19 is Red Frick House upstairs. Come on, make a snap here. Third floor rear. Doctor! Doctor, here! Keep your shine on, we're coming. Even if you're hurry. Doctor. Tears on Christmas Eve, young man. I'm, I'm afraid you're too late. <laughs> you thought I'd be a plenty wrong, Mason. It sure looks Wait, like... Wait, Mac. Don't say it. No, no. Perhaps we're not too late. Tell me, how is the mother? She's all right. But our... 
baby. Yes, your baby. Crippled. Terribly crippled. I... We prayed for our child to be born on Christmas Eve. We... We thought we'd be so happy tonight. Come now, come. No tears. Not on Christmas Eve. I'll have a look at the infant. Wait here, please. Make a snappy, Mason. That garret's always nervous when all the amulets are out. Uh, it's only nine o'clock. Hey, what's the idea of bringing a kid out here? Oh, but... But... Uh, Hold him, Doctor. Please. Of course. There. There you are. Ah, the child knows his father. Yes. He knows me. He knows me. But he'll hate me when he's old enough to realize it. Doctor. Yes? His arms. His arms. What about the kid's arms? They're straight. Straight as arrows. So what? But but before, they were terribly twisted. Both his arms were terribly crippled. You can see for yourself the child is normal. But, but I tell you, before, when I looked at... I swear they were twisted. And, and now... You were under great tension. Perhaps your imagination... Yes. 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 Oh, my little son. Aren't his tiny fingers so tiny? <laughs> and now go in and tell your wife truthfully that her baby is normal in every way. Show her. Yes. Yes. We both look forward to a happy Christmas Eve. It is. Remember, tears are not for Christmas Eve. Hey. Ah, come on, Mason. Forget all that good fairy stuff. This fella's hopped up enough as is. Let's go. Yes, Mac. Oh, doctor. Yes? A, a, a merry... Merry Christmas, doctor. Thank you. A merry Christmas to you, sir. Dr. Mason. Yes, Dr. Garrett, you've been looking for yes, me. Yes, I... Oh, um, only one bell. Go on, Dr. Garrett. Well, I must speak to you, Mason, about, about the telegram. Yes. The telegram which said that Dr. Mason was killed. The one you said was a mistake. Did I, Dr. Garrett? I've just spoken to the center of that telegram. I have just finished talking to Dr. Mason's mother on the long-distance telephone. That's my call. I'm sorry, I no, must go, Dr. Now, wait, wait, man, wait. I want to talk to you. Listen to me, please. Dr. Mason was killed. Do you hear Three hours before you walked into my office, he was killed while driving to the Albany Railroad Station. And his mother saw him die. Well, Mac, what is this call going to be? Uh, uh, a birth or a death? I don't know, Mason, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like this one. There, there, there's something about this call that... Give me a funny chill all of a sudden. Because it's in your neighborhood. Ah. Uh, 
What do you think this call is going to be? Because it is your wife. Ellie. Is this job a rotten job, Mac? Now that you can rush a doctor to her side, is this ambulance still a crate? Now that it's speeding to answer your own wife's cry of pain. Stop that kind of talk, will you? You're trying to make me think something's happened, Ellie. But I ain't afraid. So I'll say it again. Dad, driving this crate is still a job and a bum one at that. And the eight years... Rotten years. Wasted years. Could have had my own garage and repair business. I'd be in the chips today instead of... Yes, you would have made more money. Instead of risking my neck driving all night, twisting in and out of help pillars, skidding on slippery car tracks. Why, Mac? Why did you do it? How many times I gotta tell you that nothing in this whole cockeyed world could have kept me sitting back of this wheel except my wife. If it wasn't for Ellie, I... What's the matter, Mac? Ah, uh, nothing, I guess. That house we just passed, that was ours. And, uh, uh, the lights are ours. Is that unusual? No, no. It just means Ellie ain't home. She, she, uh, is probably going down to the corner as far as the drugstore. Yeah, Ellie walks the dog there every night about this time. And, and... Yes, Mac? The call we're going to. Here's that drugstore. Yes, Mac. Mason, you got a hunch what it is. Tell me what it is. It is not a birth, Mac. Let me through! Let me through again! Ellie! Ellie! It's Ellie Mason. Do something. You got to do something. Please! Please! We will take her to the hospital, Mac. Get ready. The next call will be ours. Yes, you heard. The other ambulance just went out. Are you crazy? My wife is upstairs in the operating room, and you expect me to leave the hospital? To go out and drive? There are people who need us, Mac. Our work tonight is not yet finished. But Ellie needs me. What do I care about other people? There are people, Mac, who will cry out for help, as your wife did. We will answer. Stop me. I ain't moving. It is Christmas Eve, Mac. Christmas Eve. What a Christmas present I got. <laughs> Six four West Street. It's our turn, Mac. Six four West Street. All right, Mason. Six but this four is West my last Street. trip for the night. No, not for the night. Forever. I'm through, do you hear? All washed up for good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, Mac. We did the best that we could. Dying? Ellie's dying? And I... She... She asked for you, Mac. Just once. It was while you were out on that West Street call. Then she lapsed into coma. Ellie? Ellie? Isn't there a chance, Doc Garrett? I... I doubt it. While I'm out with the crate, my wife calls for me, and now she's unconscious. Think of others. Think of others, he said, because it's Christmas Eve. What are you going to say now, Mason? You took me from me. You made me go out and drive that rotten ambulance. Well, she... She... <laughs> you went to help others. 
to bring aid to the suffering. What a consolation that is. Remember how the old woman blessed you with tears in her eyes. Oh, I can't think of nothing but Ellie's going. You with your big ideas and your fine speeches. What do you know about sorrow and suffering? All that there is to know, my son. Just now, when you when you said that for a for a second, you got old. You, you look more than a thousand years old. God, I must be seeing things like Con Ellie is leaving me, and I'm crazy, crazy with grief and sorrow. Grief and sorrow for you. Yet, how much you did to relieve others of that pain. It's funny, Mason, but... Yes, Mac? When when you said those words, I, I... I thought of my eight years. The eight rotten years. And, and they, didn't, they didn't... They didn't seem so bad. Not anymore. Now I... I... I, I, I kind of like them. Sorrow worketh repentance. You should, Mac. You should glory in them. Eight years of bringing a healer, healer to the suffering. Eight years of rushing the torn and the smash to the hands of the mender. Yeah, your words—they just—they just—they just take the pain right out of me. They—they they just draw it out. Now that your work for this night is finished, Mac, I will walk home with you. Go home, while Elliot. <laughs> yes. Okay, if you say so, Mason. But for the life of me, I don't know why I'd take your word. What a break. What a rotten break I got on Christmas Eve. You love her a great deal, don't you? Yeah. A Merry Christmas. How did she greet you each night when you returned from your driving? How did Ellie greet... Why, why do you ask that, Mason? Tell me, Mac. I want you to say it. Well, she... Tell me. She, she's like a, like a happy, anxious kid. She, she'd go out and put on a porch light... Didn't matter even if the weather was terrible. I used to boil her out for it. Tell her she'd catch pneumonia. But but she'd always put on a porch light and stand outside there, waiting for... Waiting for her shining knight returning from his errands of mercy. As soon as she'd see me come around the next corner, she'd call to me. And now, will you continue your driving? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sticking to it, Mason. Even though Ellie won't be around, I, I'm sticking. This is your corner. Yeah. <laughs> Look to your house, my son. The light? A porch light, it's on. Mason, 
Your eyes! Mason! Mason! Where are you? Look to your house, my son. No! It it can't be! Mine! Mine! It's Ellie! Ellie, darling, it is you! Mine! Thank God! Thank God! And forgive me, I did not know who you were. have just heard the sixth annual Pillsbury presentation of Grand Central Station's traditional Christmas drama. In a moment, I'll return with the names of the players who gave such an inspired performance. This is Galen Drake, bringing you a Christmas greeting from Mr. Philip W. Pillsbury, president of Pillsbury Mills. It reads, Throughout the entire world, this Christmas tide, families are gathered in prayer and festivity. Christmas started when a child was born into a family many centuries ago, and the families of the world have perpetuated the Christmas spirit. Fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters, united always in the hope that peace on earth, goodwill to men, will someday blanket the world. Only when the true spirit of Christmas stays with us every day Shall we know the peace on earth that angels sang about so long ago? I extend a greeting to your family from the people who make up the Pillsbury family, and it's a big family. The farmer who plants the wheat, the employees in our mills and offices, and your grocer, baker, and feed dealer who carry our Pillsbury products. We at Pillsbury hope this Christmas will be a true day of joy that there will be songs and feasting, a family gathered round the table, and a word of prayer, and above all, the laughter of children. For it's the children who will keep Christmas always the day of love and understanding. Signed, Philip W. Pillsbury. Our play, Miracle for Christmas, was written by Jay Bennett. Our stars, Mason Adams, Mac, and Ralph Clanton as Dr. Mason. Gilbert Mack was featured as the young father, Walter Grise as Dr. Garrett, Madeline Pierce as the baby, with the music by Lou White and Burley Mills. Next week, the tender, affectionate drama of the young reporter whose human interest New Year's story never got printed because instead of writing it, he lived it. Our cast is headed by the three top featured players of Broadway's smash hit, Death of a Salesman, Cameron Mitchell, Mildred Dunnock, and Howard Smith. Now, this is your Grand Central Station narrator, Ken Roberts, wishing you, for all the Pillsbury folks, a very Merry Christmas. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From Christmas Eve, 1949, the classic Miracle for Christmas from Grand Central Station. It's a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast 
and WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Thanks so much for making us a part of your Christmas celebration and a happy holiday to all those observing Hanukkah tonight. Whenever we play a Christmas radio show from 1944, I always think about the fact that while it was being broadcast back then, the deadliest battle of World War II was raging thousands of miles away, the Battle of the Bulge. But it was Christmas, even in war-torn Europe, as the Cavalcade of America dramatized in a script based on a true story. When our co-producer Jill suggested this program, I not only said yes, I got excited. I got excited because it stars Edmund O'Brien. He was a terrific radio actor in addition to being a great film star, and one of these days we'll find a way to play some of his performances as the second of the six actors who played the role of Johnny Dollar. This story is called Barbed Wire Christmas, and it comes from December 16, 1952, NBC and the Cavalcade of America. The DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware, makers of better things for better living through chemistry, presents the Cavalcade of America. Our play is Barbed Wire Christmas, based on the true experiences of G.I.s in a German prisoner of war camp. Our star, Edmund O'Brien. days before Christmas, 1944. The place, an American prisoner of war camp, deep in Germany. In a snow-covered compound, a group of American prisoners stands shivering in the icy wind, waiting for morning roll call. Achtung! Achtung! When you hear this whistle, you'll come to attention. A message from the commandant. On the eve of Christmas, the curfew will be extended to one o'clock. Take notice. It's eve of Christmas only. On all other nights, as usual, any prisoner found outside barracks will be shot. This is the story of that Christmas Eve. A Christmas that I and 4,000 other American enlisted men spent in a German prison camp. We lived in flimsy barracks, surrounded by barbed wire and trigger-happy German guards. We were forever cold and wet and hungry. And I mean really hungry. My name is Peterson, Sergeant Bert Peterson. As the elected leader of the 150 men of Barrack 35B, my main problem was to keep us all alive until the Allied armies came for us. And now, with another horrible German winter beginning, the only thing that kept us from doing something desperate and suicidal was our conviction that it wouldn't be too long now. Most of us kept up our hopes, but some, like a kid from West Virginia named Nick, like to sit around the barrack and worry about it. Hey, Pete, how long you think it'll be, huh? I mean, before we get out. I don't know, Nick. Uh, soon, I hope. Well, like when? I mean, make a guess, huh? Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe a month, if we're real lucky. And we're real lucky type fellas. We got a roof over our heads, three square meals a month, and all the water we can drink. Who needs more? Outside of human beings, that is, or animals. Why a month? Our guys are in Germany already, only 400 miles away now. 400 miles? Nothing at all. They'll be bouncing in here on their pogo sticks first thing tomorrow. Hey, Pete! 
Hey, Blackie, where you been? Over to the chaplain's office. Hey, you know we're all going to have a midnight mass Christmas Eve in the chapel. Ain't that charming now. What do you mean, we all? I mean the whole camp. Anybody who wants to come. That's better, because frankly, I couldn't be less interested. Yeah, we know, we know. Hey, Milstein? Yeah? Father Moran wants to know if you'll sing at the service. Hey, Pete. Sure, why not? Hey, Pete, you hear the BBC news this morning? No, no, I didn't, Miller. Why? Well, this Jerry God was talking outside just now. And he said that the Americans and the British were retreating like crazy back into Belgium. And that the war was just starting, and he said we'd be here for years yet. Ah, they're always yakking like that. You really believe that stuff? I don't know. It's just what I heard is all. Well, we can check it tonight on the radio. But it sounds phony to me. It better be, because I ain't staying here another winter. You're not, huh? No, my friend, I'm not. I had plenty last winter. More than plenty. And I ain't taking it again. So, what you got in mind, Nick? There's 4,000 of us, ain't there? 4,000 against a handful of crowds. Uh, Nick, you ever hear about Luff 3? Our guys tried a mass break there, remember? And they got mowed down like so much hay. Not one man got out. Not one. So they didn't plan right, that's all. All I know, if that stuff about the Jerry's counterattacking is on the level, I ain't staying here. And, brother, I won't be the only one. Believe me that. I believed him, all right. If the news was true, there'd be all kinds of desperate prison breaks, all resulting in one thing, plain, simple suicide. That night, to catch the BBC news, I hauled out the crystal set I'd built. Radios were strictly forbidden by the Jerry's, so we had to take precautions. What do you want me, Pete? Get that window, huh, Sid? Okay. Uh, HUD, you get by the door. And sing out if you hear anything. Right. And loud, because I can't hear so good with these earphones on. Okay. All clear here. Nobody coming? All right, now keep it quiet, huh? The news ought to be on right now. What's he saying, Pete? Yeah, is it on? What's he saying? There's some news? Quiet, will you? Quiet, I can't hear. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I think it's London. Yeah, here's the news now. On Western Front, situation is increasingly serious. And vicious counterattack. German forces have bulged back into Belgium. Some places to depth of 50 miles. United States 101st Airborne Division reported to be cut off and surrounded at Bastogne. So it's true, huh? So it's true. So we're never getting out of here. Never getting out of here. Yes, it seemed to be true, all right. Very little was said that night after the news. The lights went out at nine, as usual. And as we crawled into our sacks, no one slept. Each man I knew was lying there thinking, brooding, planning. Slowly building himself up to a state of suicidal desperation. As barrack leader, it was my job to get their minds busy with something else. But what? Finally, long after midnight, I thought of something. And in the morning, first thing after roll call, I called a barrack. All right, you guys, simmer down now, huh? Now, the purpose of this meeting... Well, it's not very long until Christmas, and... 
Well, we haven't done anything about it. What? The Yuletide season upon us so soon? Gracious me, our time does fly. Christmas in this place, who cares? Well, I do, Nick, for one. You would. Okay, so I'm a sentimental fool. But I... Well, I had some kind of a Christmas tree, for instance, every year of my life. And and some kind of Christmas dinner. And I'm going to have them this year. Jerry's or no Jerry's? Count me in, Pete. Me too, Okay, Blackie. And the name's Milstein. And I still think it's a good idea. That a boy said. Like I said, I still don't care. Oh, shut up, will you? What do you got in mind, Pete? Well, like a, like a Christmas tree for one, and and decorations, and and some kind of special dinner, and we could put on a show, and later there'll be the midnight mass for whoever wants to go. Goody, goody, goody. But will you shut up with that stuff? You want to go to your mass? You go to your mass. This is a free country. That's a joke, son. Just slipped out, Sid. Forget it. Anyway, we got to have some committees. Say, Blackie. Yeah? How'd you like to be chairman of the dinner committee? Okay, sure. Now, Hud, you're the comic around here. Suppose we put you in charge of the show. Oh, no, no, you don't, boy. Okay, okay, we vote. All those in favor of Hud being chairman of the entertainment committee, say aye. Aye. Opposed? No. (laughs) Motion carried. Oh, for Pete's sake, I don't... And this show better be good, boy, or you're going to get four dozen ripe tomatoes right in the... Hey, I'm going crazy or something? Who's got tomatoes, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And so began what I came to think of as Operation Christmas. And it started to work. In each of us, memories of wonderful Christmases long past were stirred into life. And strangely, each of us began to think of Christmas as his own personal possession to be recreated here in this dismal place down to the last minute detail. There were even a few arguments. A star on top of the tree? How come? Certainly a star. What else for Pete's sake? An angel, you dope. You gotta have an angel on the tree. An angel? You crazy or something? You always have a star. Star of Bethlehem. Somebody, you don't even know what Christmas is about? Sure I know what Christmas is about. Look, didn't this angel come to the shepherds out in the field and tell them that Jesus was born and where to find him? Yeah. Okay. That's why you always have an angel on top. And I'm chairman of the decorating committee and we're having an angel. Okay. Okay, so we put both on top. Put a star and an angel, okay? Okay, all right. Okay, no need to get so sore about it. Well, who's getting sore? Yes, there were arguments. But behind them all was a deep common concern. A common spirit. The spirit of Christmas. And as Christmas Eve drew near, our tensions and worries were forgotten in our preparations for the party. All right, so now a report from the dinner committee. Blackie? Right. <clears throat> well, well, this is what we got worked out, fellas. Uh, each guy puts in two squares <laughs> of K rations and one square D bar, and then he gets some prunes, a couple of slices of spam, and some liver paste, depending on what he's got. And uh, I'm going to make us some cake out of what is commonly referred to as ingredients. Being namely some sodium bicarb tablets. And thank you, Fanny Farmer. (laughs) Yes, everything was going fine. And then the worst happened. It was the morning of Christmas Eve. We were all busy with our various jobs in the barracks when we heard the shout that meant we weren't alone. Is it Jerry in the house? Jerry in the house! Jerry in the house! Oh, 
Dutch leader. Perished. Here. What's on your mind? A message from the commandant. Tonight it will be forbidden to have the midnight mass. Quiet! What do you mean, forbidden? The one o'clock curfew will still be allowed. But the mass is forbidden. Now, just a minute, fellas. Just a minute. Why not? Why no mass? I do not make the order, Sergeant. All I know, the mass is forbidden. Forbidden! The status. Flat! matter? They've gone crazy. What's the matter with a man? I don't know. They always got some stupid reason. How do you like that? I don't. Not a bit. You know I got a notion to go anyways? Yeah. They want trouble, we'll give them trouble. Ah, oh, what are you yakking about, Hud? You weren't going anyway. All right, so I never had much use for that religious stuff. But to me, having a mass not to go to is just as big as you're having a mass to go to. Try it again in English. Maybe it's more like this, Blackie. You're a Catholic and I'm a Jew, but... We've only got one chaplain here, and, well, he happens to be Catholic, so well, we've got to sort of spread him around, so to speak. When he talks about God, I, I think of my God, and, and Pete here thinks of his, and, and Hud here thinks of his. Assuming he's got one. Sure I got one. What do you mean? You think I'm some kind of atheist or something? One more no, Nobody said that, Hud. Nobody said that. And let's simmer down, huh? Well, I'm going over to the chapel tonight... And I'd like to see the Jerry or anyone else who's going to stop me. Me too. I'm going to. They'll kill you. They'll kill all of you. He wouldn't dare. What difference does it make for Pete's sake? Who's going to live here anyway? Yeah, I promised to boy. sing Pete and I'm singing. So we're all going, Pete, whether you like it or not. What are you going to do about it, boy? Do about it? I don't know, hon. I frankly don't know. Turn to our cavalcade play, Barbed Wire Christmas, starring Edmund O'Brien. It was Christmas Eve, 1944. We were a bunch of GIs in a prisoner of war camp in Germany. As a barrack leader, I found myself faced with a serious problem. My guys were going to chapel for midnight mass whether it meant getting shot or not. All I could do was go over and take it up with other barrack leaders. And when I got to their office, there were a couple of dozen other guys standing on the steps, barrack leaders and compound leaders, and also the chaplain, Father Moran. Hello, Pete. You too, Aaron. How are you, Padre? Say, what goes on here, anyway? Well, it's a strange and wonderful thing, Pete. It seems that 4,000 G.I.s, Catholics, Protestants, and Jews are suddenly all up in arms about a mass that most of them weren't going to anyway. So we've asked the commandant to meet us here. Everybody, huh? Uh-huh. I thought it was only my guys. Hey, look. Oh, yeah. Here he comes. Private army and all. Well, you asked to see me? About what, Captain Moran? Colonel, it's about the mass. First you gave permission, and now you've forbidden it. And our men are... Gestapo in the city forbid it. Too many men in one place, not wise. But, Colonel, the men are determined to go. So you tell them it is forbidden. Excuse me, Colonel. They know it's forbidden. They know they might get shot. But they're at the point right now where they don't care. 
So if you want a few thousand corpses on your hands, you're going to get them. No, I want no trouble here. Then uh, may I suggest that you ask the Gestapo to reconsider? Very well, I will ask, but the answer will take time, Captain. If it does not come before midnight, the order must be enforced regardless of the consequences. You will tell your men the order will be enforced. Forward! Well, Padre, I don't know, boys. We could call off the service, just close up the chapel. But if the men show up anyway, I think I'd better be there to head off trouble. You know, <laughs> I just can't get over it. I mean, what crazy, contrary, unreasonable, stubborn, and still profoundly wonderful characters Americans can be. I just can't get over it. Well, I went back to the barrack and briefed the guys on what I'd heard. They listened and nodded and said nothing. They hadn't changed their minds about going to the mass. Just didn't want to argue about it. Barrack 35B was really something to see that night. Nick and Miller had built us a beautiful tree made out of branches fastened to a broomstick handle. And it was decorated with garlands of white tissue, scraps of colored paper, and spirals of tin from our powdered milk cans. And on the very top, there was an angel carved from soap, fastened to a cardboard star. Yes, it was really something to see. Dinner time came and still no word from the Commandant. We had a fine Christmas Eve dinner that night. The Spam was fried just right and the potatoes were boiled to perfection. For dessert, we each had three stewed prunes and a slice of Blackie's specially baked cake. Pretty good, too. Whatever he'd made it out of. And then came the long-awaited show. We had all kinds of acts, but one I remember especially was Nick. Because he sang of home. On top of old Smokey, all covered with snow, I lost my true lover from courting too slow. On top of old Smokey, I went there to weep for a false hearted We had comedians, too, like the act that Hud and Blackie put on. Ah! <laughs> here I is, a German underofficer who's trying to make an honest living, and here comes another of those new American prisoners. Ah! You there! I'm uh, looking for the prisoner of war camp. Have I come to the right place? Oh, are you there, no Kriegs? What's your language? So happens that I know every word of the Geneva Convention. Uh, where have I heard that before? Quiet, please. From your insolent manner, I wonder if I've come to the right place. Well, anyway, take me to the dining room. I'm hungry enough to eat a horse. To eat a horse? Yes. Yeah, you have come to the right place. <laughs> yes, it was a fine show. But under all the laughter and applause... We knew that the men were still determined to go to that mass, come what may. It was late when the show ended. We sat around quiet now and exchanged Christmas presents with our best buddies. They were strange gifts, some of them, but 
very precious in many ways. Hey, hey, how do you like that? A can opener. Hey, Sid, where'd you get it? You... This isn't the one you had. You think I'm out of my head giving you my only can opener? No, no, I had an extra one. Well, fine. I mean, thanks. Thanks a lot. It's real charming of you, boy. Uh, here. Huh? Here, I got something for you. Hey, guys, the time. It's almost 12. Anybody interested? Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested. Hey, just a minute, hey. Just a minute, fellas. Now, please, give me a minute. I'll be brief. Yeah, well, the briefer the better. All right, so right now, we never had it so bad. But we'll get out of here. You know we will. If we can just stay alive a little while longer. Don't forget, we've got lives waiting to be lived back home. We've got... We've got girls waiting and... And kids waiting to be born and raised and... And houses waiting to be lived in. Warm houses with, with good food on the table. Okay. Okay, you don't want any part of it. Okay. So go on out now and get yourself shot. I might be right, you know. Well, maybe so. Hey, hey, outside, look. Hmm? Whole mob of guys from the other barracks heading for the chapel. Okay. There's going to be a mess. I'm going to sing. Yeah, let's go. Jerry's want to stop a few thousand of us. Let him try. Come, Come on, on, man. Come on, on Sid. Well, Pete, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. I'm coming. Let's go. The chapel was already jammed when we got there. There wasn't room for those who came after us. And soon there were hundreds of guys outside, bunched around the open doors and windows, standing hatless in the snow. Inside, up by the cardboard candlelit altar, somebody I couldn't see began to play the wheezy old organ. The faces around me were tight with determination and anxiety. Where were the Jerry's? Why hadn't we run into any on our way to chapel? Obviously, they were laying low. But why? We didn't know. We were tense and afraid. Whatever Father Moran felt during that midnight mass, it didn't show. For him, the Jerry's and their barbed wire no longer existed. It was Christmas, and he was honoring the Prince of Peace. And then, from outside, we began to hear something. And a whisper, starting among the men outside in the snow, swept inside the chapel from man to man, men whose nerves were at hair-trigger tension. The Jerry's? The Jerry's are coming! Okay, let them start something. Come on, the Jerry's. The Jerry's were coming. We could see them, coming towards us across the snow, rifles in hand. In a minute or two, they were at the chapel door. We held our breath and waited. Not a man among us moved, but we were ready for anything. Then Father Moran turned and seemed to give a nod to Sidney Milstein.
As Sid sang that age-old hymn, the Jerrys pushed their way into the chapel. And overcrowded as it was, gradually, our prison place of worship was filled with our guards and captors. I knew that one of them was right behind me, but I didn't turn around. seemed wonderfully clear that night as we walked back to our barracks and the stars strangely bright. We didn't have to talk because each man's thoughts were alike. We knew now that the words we'd heard for so long were really true, that Christmas isn't only an anniversary, but a universal spirit of brotherhood, of peace and goodwill. And in realizing these things, we'd lost our fear. We knew somehow that it wouldn't be long, that we'd soon be free, that, that we'd soon be home. And we knew, too, that this would always be the most memorable Christmas of our lives. Cavalcade Players for tonight's true story. Barbed Wire Christmas was written by Warner Law in collaboration with David Gerber and was based on Mr. Gerber's personal experiences in the German prison camp. Original music for tonight's DuPont Cavalcade was composed by Arden Cornwell, conducted by Donald Voorhees. The program was directed by John Zoller. With our star, Edmund O'Brien, you heard Gary Wahlberg, George Petrie, Bill Zuckert, Ross Martin, Harry Jackson, Ed Jerome, Tony O'Selwert, Kermit Murdoch, Dan Ocko, and Nelson Olmsted. The DuPont Cavalcade of America came to you tonight from the Belasco Theater in New York City and is sponsored by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware, makers of better things for better living through chemistry. Barbed Wire Christmas, the story from the Cavalcade of America from the week before the holiday in 1952 and from a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Our audio engineers are Douglas Bell and Kenny Pirog. 
And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. I mentioned that Christmas of 1944 turned out to be a pivotal date in history, the turning of the tide in the Battle of the Bulge. I'm sure most of the folks back home didn't know exactly what was going on over there. And anyway, on Christmas Eve, big-time radio was doing its best to give Americans a little relief from the war news. No radio stars were more big-time than Bing Crosby and Orson Welles. And on this night, the NBC show the Radio Hall of Fame, brought them together. This wartime Christmas program reunites Harry Lillis Crosby with the portly band leader Paul Whiteman, who had given Bing his start as part of the singing trio The Rhythm Boys in the 1920s. A lot of the jokes in the show are at Mr. Crosby's expense, poking fun at his receding hairline, his many children, his stable of racehorses, and his rivalry with younger singers, like Dick Hames and the then-skinny Frank Sinatra. There are jokes about the comedian Bob Hope, too, with his ski-slope nose and his tours of army bases with the singer and comedian Francis Langford. And there are references to those racy French postcards and to wartime gas rationing. There's a sweet little blooper when Bing misidentifies the King James Bible as the St. James Bible. From Christmas Eve 1944 and the NBC Blue Network, it's the Radio Hall of Fame starring Bing Crosby and his guest, Orson Welles. Philco Corporation, world's largest radio manufacturer, presents your Radio Hall of Fame. From the beautiful Earl Carroll Theater restaurant in Hollywood, today and every Sunday for one full hour, the stars made great by your recognition of their achievements are brought to you by Philco Corporation. Makers today of radar and electronic equipment to help win the war. Makers tomorrow of products for good living in a world at peace. The name of our master of ceremonies today is reason enough for him being in your radio hall of fame. He's a talented, lovable guy. The Bob Hope of song, who can currently be seen in the Paramount picture... Here come the waves. Bing Crosby. Thank you. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun to ride and sing in a one-horse open sleigh. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. O'er the fields we go, laughing and scratching all the way. Boils and bobtails, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open. Oh, we have a lot of fun. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open. 
Thank you, Jimmy Wallington, for the wonderful, eloquent introduction you gave me. You know, I was afraid for a moment that you weren't going to leave me enough adjectives to adequately introduce, or if you rather I didn't split an infinitive, to introduce adequately the one and only Orson Welles and that outstanding quartet, King's Men. And we have Joe Dorita, Darlene Garner, and Jeannie Durrell, and of course, Paul Whiteman, all of whom will entertain you today on our day before Christmas show. You know, I think Christmas is a day for prayer and joy. And I think that's what the people who first celebrated Christmas meant it to be. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the way I feel. I know that many of you have husbands and sons and brothers and others who are dear to you overseas, and that you're worried about them. But I don't think those men want you to worry about them on Christmas Day. I think they'd want you to celebrate Christmas in the same spirit as if they were with you or as near to it as you can, and to write about it to them later so that they can share the joy you've had. I never knew a soldier yet who wanted his folks back home to worry about him. And I'm sure Christmas Day is no exception. That's how I feel about Christmas. And I'm sure the Philco people feel the same way. Oh, Bing, oh, Bing, boy. Yes, well, Paul, Paul Whiteman. Well, Pops, you old son of a gun, how you been? Oh, great, Bing. Gee, when I look at you, it brings back memories of the time when... We first started out in this big world of music. Tell me, Paul, way back there in the days of the Rhythm Boys, how did you think I rated as a singer? Oh, great. I thought you were the Dick Hames of your generation. Here now. <laughs> steady, Mount Baldy, steady. Let me see. I wonder how long ago it was when you made your first appearance in my band. Now, let me see. 1915, I was a Frisco. The enemy might be listening. The enemy? Frankie has a radio, you know. <laughs> But, Paul, it's really, really a great kick getting together with you after all these years. How do you think I look? Oh, wonderful. You're so round, so firm, so loosely packed. <laughs> well, Harry Lillis, I'm mighty proud of you. You've certainly done terrific. Oh, I've stolen a few bucks and a few bows and a few things around. Well, you've managed to keep the wolf away from the door. Oh, hope calls occasionally. <laughs> Hey, Bing, all kidding aside, don't you think Bob Hope is great in the movies? Great? Well, Paul, I'd hate to be the source of any unkind comment about Hose Nose, but... <laughs> if you wouldn't, uh... You won't blab it around, of course, will you? No. I have some news for you. That, that boy is slipping. He's a tired old man. <laughs> How do you mean, tired? Well, Pops, we just finished a picture, Hope, and I call The Road to Utopia. I won't say what part of him was drooping, but it's the cleanest road picture we ever made. <laughs> say, look, Paul, we got some more alumni of Whiteman University matriculating here today. Bing, you refer to the King's men, I take it? You take it, you got it. Well, they were with me, hello, these many years. They kind of got the first start on big time on the radio in one of our programs, and I just have to break down and confess. I consider them just about the best quartet in the business. That's my personal opinion. Well, that confession of yours, plus the fact that they've been fixtures of the Fibber McGee and Molly program for the past six years, is enough to get them past the doorkeeper of your Radio Hall of Fame. The King's men start off their coronation ceremonies with swinging down the road. Ta-da-ha! 
Because they're in the meadow and they give me the moves I go singing down the road My little dog is tagging right along at my heels He's so happy that he's hopping like a toad His little tail is wagging cause he knows how it feels I go singing down the road The sun is grand, my face is tanned I'm so carefree and gay And as I hike I feel just like A school kid for a day And when the day is over There's a girl I'm to meet You see, but that's another episode My heart and I are stacking up My dream's kind of neat As I go singing down the road months ago, I tapped a guy and a, two gals by name Joe Dorita, Darlene Garner, and Jeannie Durrell. The four of us got together, rehearsed a few songs, stole a few jokes, and before you could say a Blasfogel, we were doing our act in France. We've been back a couple of months, and I figured the Radio Hall of Fame might be as jolly a spot for a reunion party as any other place, so I invited the kids down here. First, uh, I want you to meet Joe Dorita. Joe, welcome back. It's 150 millimeter with legs we have. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Well, uh, hello, Bing. Hello. Joe, here we are back from France only a couple of months, and yet to me, those days in Paris, they seem almost forgotten. Yeah, but those nights stick in my mind. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. And yet the days, I don't know. You know what I heard, Bing? What? I heard that Bob Hope was in Paris right before us. Right before us? Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to call 1917 right before us... <laughs> You know, Snozzle Schnozzle was the pinup boy of World War I, I think. Well, Bing, I don't care what you say. They tell me that Mr. Hope was the hero of a great battle in Paris. That's the truth. Yeah? Yes. Bob captured the first postcard, I think. <laughs> Joe, uh, what have you been doing? Oh, I'm back in my old business. But what was that? I forgot. The butcher business. The butcher business? Yes, the butcher business. What do you hustle, gristle? <laughs> huh? Don't be silly. I specialize in one thing. Ah, you've got to specialize yes, in Rabbit that's... sausage. Ra that's rabbit it. sausage. Rabbit sausage. What's, what's rabbit sausage, if you don't mind? Well, in pork sausage, you put pork. Uh -huh. And in veal sausage, you put veal. Yes. So I make rabbit sausage, so naturally I put rabbit in my sausage. Uh -huh. And my rabbit sausage is very good if I do say so myself. And I do say so. It's very good. I right you know, come to think of it, I think I've heard of your rabbit sausage. Oh, you must have heard of it. It's the talk of the town. You I'm know what the current scuttle is about your rabbit sausage? No, you? no, what? They say you put horse meat in your rabbit sausage. 
you heard that I put horse meat in my rabbit? Yep. It's a lie. <laughs> it's an unfair statement anybody to deliberately say that I put horse meat in my rabbit sausage. It's, it's just Wall Street trying to run me out of business. <laughs> That's what it is. The moneyed men trying to crush the little fella. Saying I put horse meat in... Who's the stool pigeon? <laughs> huh? So you do, huh? You do put horse meat in your rabbit sausage. Well, a little. What do you mean a little? Well, it's 50-50. What do you mean 50-50? One rabbit and one horse. Oh, that's all right. Right. Oh. Right. That's one of the jokes we stole. <laughs> well, naturally, naturally, Bing, I use the large rabbits and the smaller horses. That, You'll stay away from I... my stable, won't you? I will. Uh, Joe, <laughs> tell me, don't you miss La Belle France at all? Hmm? Oh, boy, yes. Especially those French girls. Ay, Ooh, ay, la, la. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> you know, Bing, I'd like to go back, but, but I can't. You can't? Why not? My wife won't release me for active duty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she's giving me trouble again. What's the matter? Oh, fighting all the time. Yeah, what's the Arguments all... I stay away from home three or four weeks. I come home. She wants to know where I've been. Oh. She's being very... Narrow-minded. She's picky. Oh, she's she picky. makes me... She yes. makes me so mad, I'm telling you. One of these, I'm going to clip her. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll clip the old bag no, if it's no, the last no, thing no, I do. No, no, you can't do I'll, I'll punch her right no, in her no, broken please. nose. No, but you'll be careful. You're oh, bitter. I, I hate that woman. She, she makes me so mad it's... It brings the tomboy out of me. <laughs> well, I hope my scoutmaster don't hear about what I'm going to do. Don't let him know. He won't take me to camp next summer. <laughs> I mean... Uh, you know, I think your wife is right. Right? Your place is at home with her. I wouldn't mind staying home, Bing, but she's so ugly. She is, huh? and, and, and the makeup she uses. Makeup? She, What's the matter with the makeup? She must use gunpowder in her makeup. Well, she must. Why do you say that? Her face is all shot to pieces. <laughs> she do get a good look at it. Oh, she I'm not, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Really, I would. Oh, you wouldn't no, say that? No, I would. Well, I'm saying that. And don't forget, Bing, other women have teeth. That's an teeth. item, too. <laughs> oh, now, just a minute. Let's be fair. Why? Your wife has teeth, too. That's just what she's got. Teeth, too. <laughs> Two lousy molars. <laughs> but you know what I'm going to do? Why, Joe? I'm going down to my draft board the first thing in the morning That's and good. make them change my classification from 66G. That's your current classification? That's my classification. Well, whatever does that mean? Well, in case of a woman power shortage, I'm the first one to knit socks. Well... That's good. I'm glad I may join you. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Now I'd like you to meet the distaff side of our breakaway follies. Two charming, lovely, and talented young ladies who really made a big hit with the G.I.s. They were a solid boss, these babes. Darlene Garner and Jeannie Durrell. Gals? Hi, Bing. Hello, Darlene. Hello, Bing. Hello, Jean. Nothing small about me, is there, fellas? I take two Francis Langford's around <laughs> when I go over there. <laughs> I want to thank you for taking me to that nightclub in Paris. Oh, I was glad to do it. It's nothing at all, really. <laughs> but, Bing, there's one thing I didn't understand. What's that? When the bill came, why did you argue so much with the waiter about the difference between the American exchange on currency and the French exchange? Darlene, I didn't want to see you get cheated, dear. Oh, oh. You catch on? Oh, Good. Yeah. Take five. <laughs> Jean, how have you been occupying your time since you got well, home? Well, Bing, I've been seeing movies with all my favorite stars. Have you? Fred McMurray. Oh, something could be said for him, all right. And Cary Grant. Something could be said for him. Bob Hope. That couldn't be said. 
Kids, why don't we wind up this reunion with a song? A little song we used to louse up overseas. The boys used to like it. It's written by Johnny Mercer and Harold Arlen. It's called Accentuate Positive. You should lead off. Yeah. <laughs> we may get lost somewhere. Just go as far as you can go. Okay. If you get stuck, send up a flare somewhere. Right. You ready? Go ahead. You gotta accentuate the positive. <laughs> Limb, don't giggle in the, the negative. negative. Latch on, oh boy, to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You gotta spread joy. Watch it through, through the, the negative. Keep gloom. Down to the minimum, have faith, oh boy. Oh, pandemonium's liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate... Well, demonstrate. <laughs> my last remark. Go ahead. Jonah in the well, Noah in the ark, what did they do? That's mellow. Just when, when everything looks so dark. Solo. Man, I said you gotta... <laughs> I don't think we better... Cause that's as far as we can... Don't, don't go away. Stay up, you'll get a draw. <laughs> I think we better uh, we better not sing any more of that. I'll get a very sharp note from Johnny Mercer. That's his favorite song. So. Jeannie, would you sing a nice solo for the boys with this wonderful orchestra of Mr. Whiteman? I'd be glad to, Bing. Lay it right in there, right in yonder. <laughs>
I think you ought to know that uh, we're very proud of this Durrell uh, because of the job she's done in this war. She's entertained in every theater of war where our boys are engaged in the last four years. She's sung and entertained in China, Burma, India, New Zealand, Australia, the South Pacific, uh, Italy, Africa, Egypt, Iraq, Persia, Sicily, England, France, Italy, everywhere where our boys are fighting, this young lady has entertained in the last four years. I think you ought to give her a big hand. You know, in introducing candidates for your Radio Hall of Fame, it's customary to indulge in hyperbole and to stretch the English language in an effort to find new expressions which will do justice to their personal magnificence and their rare talent. However, in the case of this next member, he's not a candidate because he was installed earlier this year, I'm not going to do it. After all, when you've said that he's probably the most versatile person in show business, a remarkable actor, director, producer, and writer, what can you say that just isn't so much parsley, really? I don't know... Except that maybe to add that right now, recordings of him reading the entire Bible are being made and will eventually be played on many stations throughout the country. It'll be well worth listening to because he's good. I don't know what else I can say about him, so I won't. Orson Welles, that's... Welcome to the Hall of Fame, Orson, and happy Yuletide. Thanks, Bing, and Merry Christmas to you, too. And Orson, I do mean you. Thank I you do, so yeah. much. Why don't you come up to our shack for Christmas Eve, Orson? Just the family will be home. No, thanks, Bing. It'll be too crowded. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a jolly program arranged. Really, we have. We're having a preview of the new picture I just made with Lamour and Hope. It's called The Road to Utopia. Do you mean to say that you allow your children to see Bob Hope in a movie? <laughs> well, I'm hoping it'll have the same effect on them as a crime doesn't pay short, maybe. <laughs> Tell me, uh, what is this uh, road to Utopia? Oh, it's just two guys and a gal in the frozen north. Too much plot. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for laughing. I like it. Yeah, I enjoy it. <laughs> in the picture, Hope and I are two grizzled old prospectors. Lamore is in the picture. I know what Hope is prospecting for. <laughs> and the kid hasn't got the pan for it either. <laughs> what? <laughs> What I can't understand is, this? is how come you got Dorothy L'Amour way up in the north where she'll have to wear big fur coats. Oh, no, no. Dorothy walks around in the sarong. Please, Crosby, you are straining my credulity. A sarong in the frozen north? But certainement. When Ski knows Caesar, he generates enough heat to warm a 12-room apartment. <laughs> some lover, some lover, that boy. Oh, hopes, some wonderful. lover. You know, most fellas, before they start getting romantic, have to wait till the moon is high. What about Bob? He has to wait till a girl is high. <laughs> You're so right. You're so right. Really, yes, but I am. Bobsy is an impetuous lover. You know, in one scene, Orson, he squeezed Dorothy L'Amour so hard, he knocked three of her vertebrae out of place. Well, that must have been awful for Dot. Oh, no. I got her into a clinch, snapped them right back in there. <laughs> Using the sharks, medical course, method. I no, give no, half no. Sure. Well, how do you explain that Bob Hope thing? Well, Orson, Bob has led a very sheltered youth. Oh, yeah. You know, he was 36 years old before he was told about the birds and the bees. <laughs> Well, that explains it. What's yeah. this? Well, I, I just saw him on the corner of Hollywood and Vine flapping his arms and saying, I want honey, I want honey. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no matter what you say about him, Bengal, you have to admit that Bob Hope is a great guy. Yes, yes and he's a very great. handsome. Yes, he's a great actor, too. Yes, and he's talented. And very generous, yeah. too. Yes, sir. We may as well get in all our lies before the new year. <laughs> Actually, the spirit of friendship and forgiveness should prevail, and Orson, there's something that really... I've seen the Christmas mood, and I heard you read it once, something from the Bible. I wonder if you'd read it for us now. 
I'm referring to the story of the nativity as told by St. Luke in the Bible, according to St. James. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Orson, that was a beautiful reading of one of the most beautiful stories ever told. Tonight and tomorrow in churches throughout the world we call civilized, there'll be prayer and song. Some churches will be kind of improvised, with no walls, and with their only arch, the sky. Some of those altars will be improvised. You never can tell what a chaplain might have to use as an altar. A chaplain who is near to the front lines of battle. And there, our fighting men to whom death is no stranger will sing of him who is eternal life. One of the songs that will be sung in some of those churches over there is the same that we sing in ours over here, Adeste Fidelis. The Portuguese hymn seems to breathe the spirit of Christmas. And now we'd like to sing it here for you. Adeste fidelis, leiti triumphante, venite, venite in Bethlehem. Natum vide. Regem Angelorum, venite ad or 
Today, on the eve of Christmas, Philco joins with millions of Americans in a greeting to our loved ones overseas. This year again, we look forward with hope to the day of victory and pray that men may learn through their trials and sacrifices to live together in peace and goodwill. To our tasks here at home, we pledge all our devotion that we may do our part to make you strong and victorious. To our fighting men and women, wherever they may be on this Christmas Eve, Philco sends a grateful greeting and salute. Philco Radio Hall of Fame will continue after station identification. This is the Blue Network. You are dialed into your Radio Hall of Fame, which this week pays homage to those superlative artists in the field of entertainment that we have with us here today. Orson Welles, the King's Men, Paul Whiteman, and your Master of Ceremonies, Bing Crosby who, like one of his own horses, is champing at the bit. A few years ago, Ken Darby wrote a musical setting for that merry old childhood classic which glorified the Ranger for Tarandus, known to you and also to me as that common four-legged hat rack, the reindeer. The classic, of course, is The Night Before Christmas, and it received such a royal welcome, it became kind of a regular feature offered at Christmas time by the King's Men. Out of their flowing bowl of song, the King's Men pour The Night Before Christmas with Sally Sweetland doing the lullaby. Gentlemen... Now, Dasher, now, Dancer, now, Prancer, now, Vixen, on Comet, on 
Cupid, Von Donner, and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Dash away, dash away, dash away, dash away all. And so up to the housetops, of course, as they flew with a sleigh full of toys. And St. Nicholas, too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof all the clattering noise of each galloping hoof. All bundled in fur from his head to his foot, old Santa was covered with ashes and soot. I drew in my head and was turning around, when down the chimney he came with a bow. Like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow. The beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a little old pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke went around and around and around his head like a wreath. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old jolly old elf. And I laughed and I laughed and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. He had a broad face, ho, 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 and a little round belly, ho, 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 that shook when he laughed, ho, 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 like a bowl full of jelly. Ho, ho, he, he gave me a wink of his eye and a twist of his head. A chuckle and a smile I knew all the while I had nothing to dread. Not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, then laying a finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he
What is it, Uncle Well? Well, I got, just got this through the grapevine. Bob Hope sent you a very novel Christmas present. Just the idea of him sending me anything is novel enough. What, what did you hear that he sent me? Uh, a pair of bobby socks. That's a, gro- that's a gross lie, an untruth, a fabrication. So you're saying? You can pronounce yes, it, too. Yes, I can. Uh, uh, what did Bob send you? Well, he sent me Frankie Sinatra. Very practical gift, too. You can't get the regular pipe cleaners anymore. You've got... <laughs> But I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say uh, talk like that about Frankie, because actually the kid has put on a lot of weight. He even has a pot tummy now. No, that isn't a pot tummy, baby. No? No, no, no. Frankie was having tea the other day, and he swallowed the bag. Oh. <laughs> tell me, uh, what are you going to send Bob Hope for Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Don't you have any suggestions, Orson? I mean, something that could be said over the air, of course. Well, I understand Bob is a little uh, short of gas. So? so uh, yes. Well, I thought you might send him a siphon. Siphon? Hmm. Have you noticed that boy's nose? <laughs> really? Come up close on that horn of his sometime. Frighten you to death. Now we're on the subject of gifts, Orson. What have you got stashed away for us? Well, I brought you a story by Oscar Wilde, The Happy Prince. Well, mighty generous you are. Will you unwrap it? Will you lend a hand in the telling of the story? Do my best, Orson. Good. High above the city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes, he had two bright sapphires and a large ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. One night there flew over the city a little swallow on his way south to the pyramids in Egypt. He stopped when he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up here for the night. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. I have a golden bedroom. Just as the swallow prepared to go to sleep, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing. There's not a single cloud in the sky, and yet it's raining. The climate here in the north is really dreadful. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off? I must look for a good chimney pot. Before he'd opened his wings, a third drop fell. And he looked up and saw... Ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears. And tears were running down his golden cheeks. Who are you? I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping, then? When I was alive and had a human heart, I didn't know what tears were. My courtiers called me the happy prince, and happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. Now that I am dead, I am up here so high, I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. What? Is he not solid gold? The swallow said this to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. 
Far away, far away in a little street, there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and he's asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he's crying. Swallow? Little Swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal and I, I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Swallow? Little Swallow, will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and the mother is so sad. It is very cold here. But I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. How wonderful the stars are. And how wonderful is the power of love. I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball. I've ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it. But the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of the ship. At last he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That's because you've done a good action. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. Tonight I go to Egypt. The swallow was in high spirits at the prospect. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? I am just starting. Swallow, will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt. Tomorrow my friends will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes. And on a great granite throne sits the god Mammon. Swallow? Swallow. Little Swallow, far away across the city I see a young man in a garret. He's leaning over a desk covered with papers. He's trying to finish a play for the director of the theater. It's too cold to write anymore. There's no fire in the grate and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer. Shall I take him another ruby? Oh, alas, I have no ruby now. My eyes are all that I have left. They're made of rare sapphires, which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take it to him. He'll sell it to the jeweler and buy firewood and he'll finish his play. Dear Prince, I cannot do that. Swallow. Swallow, little swallow, do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in as there was a hole in the roof. Through this, he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands so he didn't hear the flutter of the bird's wings. And when he looked up, he found the beautiful sapphire. I'm beginning to be appreciated. This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. The next night, the swallow flew back to the happy prince. I'm come to bid you goodbye. Swallow. Swallow, little swallow, will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt, the sun is warm on the green palm trees, and the crocodiles lie in the mud and look lazily about them. 
My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek. Dear Prince, I must leave you. But next spring, I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you've given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose. And the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, there stands a little match girl. She's let her matches fall in the gutter, and they're all spoiled. Her father will beat her. She doesn't bring home some money, and she's crying. She has no shoes or stockings, and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her. Her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind. Swallow. Swallow, little swallow. Do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye. Started down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, so I will stay with you always. No, little swallow, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always. And he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile and catch goldfish in their beaks. Of the sphinx who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything. Of the king of the mountains of the moon who worships a large crystal. Of the great green snake that sleeps in a palm tree and has 20 priests to feed it with honey cakes. And of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies. Dear little swallow, you tell me of marvelous things. But more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses. While the beggars were sitting at the gates, he flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to the poor. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off until the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor. And the children's faces grew rosier and they laughed and played in the street. Then the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from the eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs. And the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder. But he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker wasn't looking. And tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just enough strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow. You have stayed too long here. It is not Egypt that I am going. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue as if something had broken. 
The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below in the company of the town councillors as they passed the column. He looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. And they melted the statue in a furnace. And the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course. And uh, it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself? Of myself! Of myself! Said each of the town councillors, and they quarreled. When I last heard of them, they were quarreling still. What a strange thing. Said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on a dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city said God to one of his angels. And the angel brought in the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God. For in my garden of paradise, this little bird shall sing forevermore. And in my city of gold, the happy prince shall praise me. Orson, you were grand. Leave your name and address with the girl at the desk. I must use you in my next season's series of serious plays. I have some things for you in mind. Tell me, Curly. (laughs) Where do you plan to stage these tragedies? In the paddock at Santa Anita? Oh, it could be. (laughs) How'd you think I did as the happy prince? I liked you in it. No, seriously. I really did. Thank you very much for doing it. Thank you, Orson. You you I saved was... the day. Saved the day? Yes. You think I was an adequate happy prince? You were more than adequate. I thought I was more or less of a sad sack myself. <laughs> but, uh... Well, no, no, I guess it's me, isn't it? In through here? Right in through yes, here, yes, you, yes, you lay right. something in here. No, I wanted to pay a little tribute to you, Bing. Me? Yeah, but I'll skip it. Thank you. Yeah. I'll see you There's after a song I'd like to hear you sing. Find me a and tall... I'm sure our listeners would, too. It was originally introduced in a picture called Holiday Inn. And, uh... You are ahead of me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it won the Academy Award. This is almost as good as The Happy Prince and has the best song <laughs> written for a motion picture in 1941. I just happen to have my notes here. And your recording of it has sold two million copies of it. Am I right yes, there in my sir. statistics? Mm-hmm. It's called... I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. Right. But don't ask me to sing that. Oh, why not? Well, White Christmas has been done so much lately. Every time you turn on your radio, you've got to sweep the snow out of your living room. <laughs> No, nevertheless, Bingo, White Christmas has become something of a classic, and besides, nobody sings it quite like you. Oh, Isn't you that right? Say that. You so, uh... Oh, Mind you, I said quite, quite. Uh, yes. You left your opening. <laughs> so how about singing it? Well, for after us? that big build-up, us, and what else can I do but submit gracefully? Especially since, by a curious coincidence, the king's men are at the microphone. Paul Whiteman has his baton raised, and the musicians are already swinging into the opening strains of. Why? 
the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen of Christmas be with us, and not only on Christmas. We mean the spirit of kindliness and gentleness that seems to be with us on Christmas Day, the spirit that makes us say Merry Christmas to a stranger, that makes us friendlier, the spirit of giving to others, the spirit of selflessness, the spirit of love thy neighbor as thyself, the spirit of him whose birth we celebrate today, some of which seems to enter into us on Christmas. We don't mean to preach a sermon, but we do think that if something of that spirit were with us 365 days of the year, instead of just one day, and if it weren't just with us, but with nations, 
all nations. Then, maybe someday, unstained by the red blood of war, there'd be a long succession of white Christmases. A lifetime. Many lifetimes of white Christmases. And now, thank you, Orson Welles, and you Kingsmen, and Paul Whiteman, and Joe Dorita, and Darlene Garner, and Jeannie Durrell, and all of you who contributed toward this Christmas show. This is Bing Crosby extending Christmas greetings to you all and taking a sprig of holly from the door of your Radio Hall of Fame, leaving Jimmy Wallington to add a few final decorations to Philco's Christmas tree. program has come to you as a greeting from Philco distributors and dealers in the United States and Canada. To them, to all the members of the Philco family, and to the millions of Philco owners throughout the world, Philco simply says, in the old, old way, a Merry Christmas and a Happier New Year to you all. Radio Hall of Fame, produced by Tom McKnight, came to you from the Earl Carroll Theater Restaurant in Hollywood. This is the Blue Network. From December 24, 1944, the Radio Hall of Fame, with host Bing Crosby and his special guest, Orson Welles. It ends a Christmas night recollection from the big broadcast for this year, and will close as we usually do, with a final radio salute to the glorious music of the holiday. For some three decades, NPR has been producing A Jazz Piano Christmas, and for even longer than that, offering the series Marion McPartland's Piano Jazz. Here is Ms. McPartland with trumpeter Roy Hargrove and Silver Bells, recorded in 1998. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Douglas Bell and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz, expressing our shared wish for peace on earth and goodwill toward all. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas, everybody.
On to more recommended stories. Support for WMU comes from University of Maryland Carey School of Law, where non-lawyers can earn a Master of Science in Law to understand and navigate the laws of their industry. Online at www.